Hi there, this is David Hayden Jones, the actor who plays Mr. Ketch on Supernatural, and you are listening to Neil Before Pod. Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. to Neil Before Pod. I am your host Chris McCrell and ahead of Avengers Endgame release on Blu-ray, DVD and digital in the UK, we decided that those of us who were blipped out of existence prior to the previous Endgame podcast would all unite together and chat about the film and what we didn't get to say during the original podcast because we were all missing in action. Joining me is someone who was on that original podcast, though, a man who was working on a blip beard before it was cool, Mr. Craig McKenzie. Hello, Craig. Hey, Chris. On your left. Also joining me, a man who returned from the blip to find out that Kellogg's had discontinued ricicles, Cadbury's had reintroduced the Whisper, and that Love Island is still a thing on TV, Aaron. Hello. How are you? Uh, I'm alright. See, I, I think you'd be a bit like me. There's just so much that we've missed in the intervening time between podcasts, Aaron. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Isn't time travel weird, everyone? It's as if we were on a podcast merely weeks ago, but however, we have just appeared again. I was actually trying to get to that joke myself about yeah, about having done all those other podcasts <laughs> and presumably other alternate realities, but I couldn't couldn't get to it. Yeah, yeah. As you know from the as yet to possibly has been, maybe never will be published time travel podcast. <laughs> time is weird. Yeah. Time is strange. By the way, I've gotten fed up with that podcast, so I've actually gone ahead into the future and recorded it because it was just hanging over me as a thing to do, so I've just gone and done it. That's good. One of these days we'll go and record it as well. Hope it went well. Did for me. Do you, do you know what? I might get my time machine, travel into the future and record that podcast with you, Aaron. I think you should. It just hangs over your head forever until you actually finally travel to the thing and get it done. Well, the loop <laughs> won't be complete until we do it. Yeah, up until then, people can either look for it or wait for it or listen to it all at the same time. It's insane. I don't know how it works. <laughs> anyway, ahead of our main event... 
it is time to discuss something that has been in the news and is Marvel related. So it all sort of ties in all nicely, which is the news about Spider-Man. In particular, his rights going back to Sony. He's no longer going to be in the MCU. This was a story that was breaking and then broken and then rumoured, then not rumoured, then true and now just 100% confirmed. Endgame and Far From Home were the last that we will see of Spider-Man in the MCU, potentially. At least at the time of recording. Yeah, <laughs> the situation is fluid. In the future, past or present, this may have now changed again. Yeah, it kind of sucks, doesn't it? We kind of sat for so long saying, we want this guy in the MCU. Why won't they put him in the MCU? They finally did. We thought it was fine. And now they just snatch him out from under us. It seems really weird because I think we talked about it in the Far From Home podcast. And we we're like, well, considering the money this has made, there's no way that... At the end of this, they're just going to sort of overwrite it and, and put him back. There's no way he's going to go about by himself again. And Sony obviously looked at it and went, yeah, do you know what we're going to do? Yeah, we've had enough of all this. <laughs> Let's just go back to the way it was, thanks. They obviously listened to that podcast and thought, we'll show them. <laughs> yeah, they like this. <laughs> we just ruined their day. Yeah, I mean, I think the situation's more complicated than any of us will be able to actually fully understand because we're not film lawyers or box office experts or anything but it seems like Disney got a bit too greedy and then Sony ran away. It seems that way I would like to see what the financials and everything are on the situation. It's like is there a difference between a Spider-Man solo movie and when Spider-Man appears in the other films? Like how does that quite work? So I know that answer so when Spider-Man is in an MCU movie, so well he's always in an MCU movie until now, when he's in a team-up movie, such as Avengers Endgame, for example, spoilers, maybe he's not in it, we don't know. Uh, can't spoil it yet. <laughs> spoilers, yep, such spoilers, as Avengers in, Such as Avengers Infinity War, he was definitely in that. So we'll go with that. So when he's in one of those, the box office kind of goes to Marvel, although they will still pay royalties on the character. Whereas when he's in a solo movie, like Homecoming or Far From Home, Disney make 5% of the box office gross. That's what they get. That's their like fee for doing all the work, basically. Doing all the creative work. Whereas Sony are distributing the film, fronted the budget, etc. So Sony get 95% of that profit. So I think what Marvel were trying to do was trying to share the costs, but also share ownership. Which mm. probably works out okay for Sony as well, because they're not fronting... I don't know what the budget of Far From Home is. Let's say it was $300 million. So they're would only front 150 million, but at the same time they would only make like half a billion dollars if it clears a billion. So I don't know. It's, it's not it's, that simple, though, is it? Because don't Disney own 100 percent of all the merchandising? So it, it's not as yeah. simple as just rights on the the movie itself, because the movie gives them the right to. I was going to say print. What's the word? Produce a bunch of new figurines and new costumes and new coloring books and everything so it's never as simple as what one marketing team is putting out saying how unfair it is yeah well in terms of the actual money the films make though that that's what it boils down to the merchandising i was going to get onto actually but yeah if you buy a spider-man toy i think that money goes to marvel except from the royalties for spider-man himself i think some financial expert can clue me in perhaps yeah, do we have a Neil before the financial expert feature? We do not. No? We need to find ourselves a financial expert. We do, yeah. I mean, look, looking at the coffers and how much we get paid, we really, really need a financial <laughs> expert. <laughs> but whatever these business reasons are, ultimately it's just getting rid of a good thing, which is not a good thing. 
it doesn't seem like a win-win to me. I don't know. I, it just depends on how hard in the negotiations either parties went. You know, someone's went, we want slightly more, or someone's went, we want majorly more, and the other parties just went, well, you're getting none of it. Thank you very much for setting up our character. We're going to take them off elsewhere now that we've done our little bit and introduced them and got them all set up. We'll <laughs> put them out of the way. When a lot of people are saying, it's fine, Tom Holland will still be Spider-Man, all is not lost. But I actually, my prediction is that's not what's going to happen. They keep saying he's under contract, but we have to remember that Andrew Garfield was still under contract. They're not really worth anything. If they want to go in a new direction, they will. And I don't think it makes sense to put Tom Holland in a solo universe after we're so used to seeing him in a connected universe. I think general audiences will struggle with that. So I think we're looking at another reboot in the next few years. I think potentially. I think storytelling-wise, it would be really difficult to suddenly go, oh, remember all these people that you were in contact with and speaking to and were really helping you out only just a film ago? Yeah, what happened to all them? Where are they? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I think it would be a major sort of thing like, oh, you can't mention any of this anymore and this is now removed from the skyline. It's weird. It seems like one of those things that maybe they'll come up with something closer to the time. Presumably we're a little bit off from the next Spider-Man film, but you'd think it would be a bit of a blow for Marvel unless they are sitting there and all the plans that they had already released were Spider-Man free. Like they had the option of, yeah, we can go with or we can go without, kind of like before they signed the deal to get Spider-Man in the first place. Uh, you know, oh, yeah. they sat there with two sets of plans going, right, here's if it all works, and here's if it doesn't work at all. Well, the thing is that Marvel are in this situation where they don't actually need Spider-Man. He's kind of a nice to have for them, but their universe has always worked without him, and probably will continue to work without him. I'm sure at this point that you don't have your Robert Downey Juniors and your Chris Evans and so on, but there's still enough interest, I think, to keep it going, and I feel like Sony will need Marvel more than Marvel will need Sony at this point. It seems a bit strange. It's a, I think it's a bit of a shame because of the, the work that they've done setting the character up back in the universe. It seems like there was a lot of potential possibilities in there. I do have some reasoning with why they would choose this particular moment to do it, but it gets kind of spoilery, so we can maybe save it for later on if I remember in our <laughs> chat. Um, but I will almost definitely forget I think the last thing I'd add on the back of this situation is I read an article in Forbes that I found really interesting. It'll be in the show notes, I hope, if I can find it again. So basically there's a situation where Sony have had other companies circling them for a few years in terms of looking to purchase. Namely Apple, who, you know, as everyone knows, are about to release their own streaming service. So it could just be a good upload of content for them if they just get Sony's library. But apparently if that happens... Spider-Man reverts back to Marvel by default because he doesn't belong to Sony as such. He's only licensed. He's only licensed as long as they keep making films. So until the point that they get changed as an entity by being bought up by another company. So if they get bought up, Marvel might get them back for free in a couple of years anyway. So that'd be an interesting development. It is interesting. I mean, I, I don't know sort of the way the contracts are written to that extent. I don't know if there's a way that they can not shell the company but do an equivalent to that and then still somehow keep the rights. You know, like the company of Sony still exists simply to keep its mitts on the rights of different properties that it has leased or has loaned out, but all the proceeds are getting funneled into another corporation. I don't know. There's probably always a way to do things. There's a bunch of legal something. It seems like there'd be a way if, if someone really, really wanted to, and unless the contract has been written proper concrete, but 
that being said, I, I think there still is the possibility that it'll go back. I still think there's the chance that when they're writing their next films and they're trying to plan stuff out, that they turn around and go, oh, do you know what? This isn't going to work. And eventually both sides will back down and take a reduced amount either way. See, that hasn't stopped them before, so I don't think Sony would be worried about the thought of it not working. No, well, that's, that's true. But then if they have one wobble after doing this, then their shareholders and their <laughs> their management are going to turn around and go, oh, no, now we've got to go back and say, please, please, let them just slide back in nicely. Thank you. Is anyone else amused by the fact that there's a bunch of like high-priced lawyers sitting in meeting rooms talking about Spider-Man <laughs> for hours on end? I mean, I'd love to be a fly on the wall of those conversations, these complex legal mumbo-jumbo conversations just with Spider-Man stuff thrown in. There's a really good sketch by a guy called John Finnemore. It's part of his souvenir program. If you get a chance to listen to it, it's really, really funny. But it's a sketch between two people negotiating the contract between a fast-food outlet and a movie company and they can't decide who is supposed to pay who for the merchandising (laughs) so the movie company thinks that they've got to pay the fast food outlet because they're using the fast food outlet's popularity to promote their film meanwhile the fast food outlet thinks they should be paying the movie company because the kids will come to the (laughs) the fast food outlet to get the toys from the really ridiculously popular film (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it's just this argument keeps going round and round in circles. Anyway, check it out. John Finnemore's Souvenir Programme, if you get the chance. It's on radio and available in audiobook form and such likes. I mean, Aaron, do you think it's a good thing or not? You kind of were quiet on that. Do I think it's a good thing that we can't have these films anymore? Well, you think I hate fun that much? <laughs> <laughs> He's not saying no. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm yet to hear the denial. <laughs> okay, would you, I'm trying to try and argue that perspective. I don't know if I can. We get, if we're going to try and get lawyers in. <laughs> uh, yeah, there was just too much fun going on. Too many people were enjoying themselves. It was uh, becoming a franchise. It was so popular. We just need to do some more damage now. Ruin everything and bring the whole thing down, really. Well, I'm convinced. <laughs> the jury rests. <laughs> Dear me. All right. Well, having thoroughly discussed that and shown that we have absolutely no legal or financial knowledge whatsoever... It's time to move on to our main event, which is, of course, chatting about Avengers Endgame. Now, I will start quickly with some spoiler-free thoughts, because we don't want to ruin anything. So let's start with you, Craig. I mean, Endgame, it doesn't seem like it would be your cup of tea. How did it go down with you? I mean, you know how much I hate this comic book stuff. I just (laughs) can't be bothered with any of it, really. I just got dragged along as many times as I saw it. So I suppose the question for me is whether my opinion on it has changed in the last podcast, because uh, I went into great detail about how much I liked it back then. And the answer is, it hasn't. I've seen it a bunch of times, both in the cinema and somehow at home. I don't know how I managed that. And I still love it. Every time I watch it, I still get as much out of it as I did the first time. It ticks along wonderfully. It's beautifully paced. The character work is amazing. Yeah, I'll use it. The word masterpiece. Fine, it's a masterpiece of comic book movie making. And it's going to be tough to beat. It's going to be tough to surpass this, as far as I'm concerned. And Aaron, lover of joy and happiness, what did you think of Avengers Endgame? (laughs) Well, I think I appreciated a bit more what you meant there when you were saying it doesn't seem like Craig's cup of tea, because we've long argued the split between the pure fun and the... Opposite. I don't even know what the what what is the what what is the best description of what I prefer. 
I don't even know. Help me out. Dark. Well, I like the darker side of the, the comic book stories, and clearly Endgame... Mature. Try that. <laughs> Maybe so. <laughs> but Endgame is definitely along those lines, whereas the other films were heading more towards the fun side of things. So Endgame was almost guaranteed to be my preference of them all, and it definitely was. I really enjoyed Endgame because of the meaning that we inevitably got from the closure of so many stories. And I think it's quite telling for me that I can't really remember Infinity War at all. I I didn't hate the film, but I, I didn't really get anything from it. It wasn't something that was too memorable to me. I remember Spider-Man dying at the... Oh, are we on spoiler-free? <laughs> too late. Infinity War is fine. Um, yeah, yeah I remember Infinity War. I mean, I mean, it's been plenty of time before. <laughs> yeah, too late. So yeah, that's it. Um, so yeah, there was that one death scene that I, I do remember because that had a certain power to it. But other than that, I don't really have much of a memory for it. Whereas Endgame, I could, despite its three-hour runtime, remember so many parts of it. So this was the closure. This was the final point. This was the culmination of all the other films for me, and I got. A lot out of it all the way through. I'm kind of the same, to be honest, as both of you. I really enjoyed this. For me, it was sort of like the culmination of so many films that we've seen. It pays off so many great sort of character beats that you've been wanting to see for a long time in ways that you don't expect. Sometimes it surprised you in that way. I didn't expect it to be as hard-hitting as it was. I didn't expect it to have as good performances as it did as well, for some reason. But no, it was absolutely cracking and I really enjoyed it. And a bit like you, Craig, even though going back to it a little while later, still enjoy it, still see moments and little bits in the background or little lines that I maybe didn't catch the first time. So well worth a repeated viewing. With that being said, I think we should jump now into the spoiler zone and right through this portal here. Alright, here we are in the spoiler zone, uh, ready to completely ruin Endgame for everyone. So, if you're listening to this and you haven't watched Endgame, let me just give you some advice. Go and watch it, you'll love it, come back later. Cool. Now please we can come start. Back. That's <laughs> the key part. Yeah, please, yeah. please come, come back. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back right here to this moment, right now, <laughs> where I'm talking, and we'll resume. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back. Okay, it is time to chat about Avengers Endgame and get fully in. And do you know what? It was quite interesting what you were saying, Aaron, because you were talking about the different tone in this to other Marvel films. And that you like the darkness, you like a bit of humanity in it, a bit of realism sometimes, a bit of the dark. But this film sort of shifts through several different tones. Sometimes they butt up against each other. I think there's some little moments that are undercut by humour and it kind of underserves them. I think there's other bits where maybe it gets a bit too dark. What did you think about the tonal shifts through this? I gotta confess, I didn't think I noticed anything and uh, anything that butted up against each other. And, and normally that stuff really knocks me, especially as someone who could never really enjoy Buffy the Vampire Slayer because I couldn't enjoy any of the moments of emotion because there was immediately a joke and it just to drive me up the wall 
because all of it was just turned into almost a bit of a nonsense by there being that constant humour. But I do remember there being odd little moments like that, but maybe if they were spaced out far enough away from each other, it allowed me to, to get past without being annoyed by them. Plus, the key moments that had that darker tone to it are the openings. Now, I don't think you are left too long without hope coming in because you get that brutal opening with Hawkeye which is crucially done without music it's just an unexplainable loss to start with which is pretty much a hit but then of course you only have to get to a few minutes before Scott Lang turns up so they don't leave you too long in in anything that's too miserable I don't think but then it is a comic book film but then even despite that, yeah, as soon as you get your hope from finding Thanos, then of course the hope is dashed again as Thanos is killed. But even then, it's a three-hour film, so I think everything was spaced out well enough that I did have time to feel any given emotion that was set up by a scene. And there weren't too many jokes for me coming in hard at any of the bigger plot points I think that, in fact, the, the, the only one I can really remember is right at the end when you're supposed to feel the joy of the portals opening and all the heroes coming through. And I think one of the Doctor Strange characters makes some joke about you're expecting X, Y, and Z or something or other. But because it's that's... An, yeah, he says yeah, you wanted more. You wanted more. But because you, yeah. you were already on an emotional high at that point, because you've got the thrill of all the heroes coming back... The idea of interrupting a high with a joke is positive with positive. So it stacked for me, it adds together. Whereas I think if some idiot had made a joke after the killing of Thanos, that would have been just stupid. That would have been this kind of more ridiculous humor where it's just trying to break the emotion. Well, there is an attempted joke after Thanos is killed when Thor says, I went for the head. No, no, that is not a joke at all. That is reveling in misery. That yeah, but particular- remember, in, well, Chris, you'll remember in the mm. cinema, like there was a couple of sort of chuckles at that moment, a kind of couple of guilty chuckles. I think if they're chuckles, though, it's not the same thing as a laugh because you can laugh in the face of brutality. It's almost this perverse laugh. I mean, I'll never know because I, I can't remember hearing it. I wasn't in the same screening as you, but... I could imagine a dark, perverse laugh. There is black humour, but there's a brutality to it in which you can almost defend yourself by chuckling. But if anybody belly laughed at that, I would be completely surprised because it is only the black humour of realising the perverseness of the universe that you get a second chance that's not a second chance that is being symboled here. So I don't think it was. I don't think it was humour. It's all subjective. Obviously, somebody said they find it hilarious. Fair enough. That's your sense of humour. But for me, that line was more of an underlining of the futility of the situation. That should have been a revenge moment, but because it's given in such a dejected manner by the actor, then it's not. It's actually, as I say, this underlining of his own miseries, this underlining of his own defeat. So nothing goes against itself from my perspective, the jokes that came in only added to the high points, 
or were black enough to underline the low point. So yes, there were lots of tonal shifts, but I think I was down when I needed to be. I think I was offered hope when I needed to. I think that hope was dashed to really then get us into the the full misery of the five-year time gap because someone puts five years later on the screen, it means nothing to you. But if five years later comes after this brutal stomping out of all hope, five years later then gets a meaning carried through with that. So even with these cinema tricks ploys, writing plot ploys, I still felt like I was in the right place every time where I needed to be to then feel the full rise of that final hope as someone says, all right, guys, we have to try time travel. And and then it builds up from there to heroic finish. So yeah, no grating. I think I was in the right place throughout. I think it neatly divides in terms of tone. So you start off with the essential funeral for the first hour where everyone's all morbid, everyone's processing everything that's gone on. Or in the case of post five years, they have processed it and they're just, they're just struggling. Everybody's struggling in their own way. And then the time travel element comes in, so it's a bit more hopeful. Everybody's all joking again. You know, they, they think there's a solution. And then you get to the sort of trying to wrestle victory from, from the ending, you know, where... Yeah, we succeeded. Oh, we're under like massive attack and we have to win here. So I think it divides neatly. It, it's probably not one hour, one hour, one hour. But it's probably pretty close. It neatly divides the acts of the film, certainly. So I think it feels natural the way it progresses. I never thought of it as being in any way... I, I, know, I know what you mean by not one hour, one hour, one hour, because it's clearly not. But I wouldn't have even seen it as neatly divided that way because there is this constant back and forth within the hours so within the first hour there is no hope but then they find Thanos and they have hope but then there's no hope again so you've got an up and down there it's not completely funereal from that perspective because you do have that moment but then it's dashed even further and then even in the we're actually going for the victory of gaining the infinity stones you have the death of Black Widow which is pretty horrible to have to watch and it's also amazingly joyful to watch because there are two characters trying to save each other it's just the end point so in fact i would say at no point for me was there a clear division it was this constant high point feel good low point but then even then with mixed in together a high point comes with a cost so you're feeling happy and sad at the same time and it's that complexity that I think I only personally see in the, if you will, darker storylines. You don't see this complexity of emotion, for example, in Infinity War, in some of the other TV series that we all watch. But the complexity is what I definitely seek out. I think if it had been simply a funeral at the start, then you get hope and then it was a thriller at the end. It would actually not have been as interesting as it was. And I don't think the neatness of simplifying it down into three packages actually does the film justice. I would say it's definitely much more complicated than that. I definitely think there were peaks and troughs of happiness and sadness through it. I think the opener is pretty brutal and hits you right away. When you sort of see the impact to Hawkeye that he's lost his entire family, what are the chances that he's going to be the one left and that he's going to lose all of them at once? Because you know what's going to happen as a viewer as well. That's the thing. But you've seen the previous film, you know where this is going, and it's really hard. You then see a broken Tony Stark being taken back to Earth. At that point, just having lost all hope, falling out with everyone over the back of it. 
So it just puts you on the back foot right away. And then you see them get a lead to Thanos. And you think, well, maybe. Maybe you've got it. But, of course, that was the double bluff. They're going, well, it wasn't going to be that simple. We weren't going to spend the whole movie trying to hunt him on his planet farm. And you're left wondering what you're going to get at the end of that. And I think there are other troughs. You know, you have the, the heist, the time heist, has a lot of fun elements in it. But then also, you lose Black Widow in part of that. So you end up with a trough there again. And then you have, well, they've succeeded. But at the same time, when you know they've succeeded in bringing everyone back, you also know that Thanos is on his way again. So you you don't quite get the same high from that as I think you maybe would. And then through the battle, obviously, you get multiple ups and downs through all of that. I think it is a bit complicated, but I think you can break it down, kind of like uh, Craig said, with a little bit of the beginning, middle and end of your story. But there are little peaks and troughs throughout that. My thing with the humour was that often bits like Tony's breakdown at the beginning is broken up by a joke from Rocket. And then you get about twice, maybe even three times with four in his emotional state. You get sort of two quippy put downs pretty soon after he has a sort of epiphany moment, a bit of progress or opens up, there's like two put downs pretty quickly. One from Ant-Man when he's talking about the stones and another one from Rhodey when he's talking about he wants to be the one to snap in the gauntlet at the end. So those were the ones that sort of stuck out to me a little bit as ones that maybe subverted or undercut a moment slightly in hindsight. Now, I've got to say, this is in total hindsight because I don't think I quite picked them up as that at the time when I watched it first time round. But I don't know if you felt the same about some of the one-liners and where they were placed. What I find interesting about the Thor stuff, it's pretty clear Thor's having a really tough time of it. and He's overcompensating for the loss that he feels. And, and it's really tragic. They try and make that funny throughout. You know, it's like, ah, look at him, he's fat and has a huge beard. It's hilarious. But, like, Rhodey is consistently mean to him. Because it's the bit where it's like, right, Thor tells about the ether, and then he's just sitting there and he's asleep or, or whatever he's doing. And Rhodey's like, I'm pretty sure he's dead. And then he says there's cheese whiz running through his veins. And then... I mean, Rocket makes fun of him all the time, but Rocket's a dick anyway. Rocket is not a nice person. Yeah, that's Rocket but, being Rocket. Really, yeah, it's, but, yeah, he makes fun of everybody. He just yeah, he doesn't care. And also his mind is focused on getting his family back. So he seems a bit impatient as well. And I think the fact that they're consistent about who's dropping these one-liners in context of who, if it was just suddenly, you know, Stark randomly makes fun of Thor for being fat, it wouldn't have really made sense. But the fact that it always goes to Rhodey, does. Yeah, I think Stark only really gets the Lebowski line, doesn't he? I think that's about the only one that you get from Stark through it. Yeah, which opens up a can of worms about the MCU. <laughs> Who was, how does nobody notice that Stark's father figure mentor type guy looks a lot like the Lebowski? <laughs> or the dude. So moving on from that, obviously we've already mentioned the time heist and on this podcast we've already mentioned time travel. So one of the things I wanted to talk about was this jump that they make from the killing of Thanos to five years' time. And I kind of felt, not cheated, cheated isn't the right word, I'm hoping that they've maybe got a little bit in the tank from these five years that they skip forward. But there's a lot of development that happens in these five years. You get a little view of the post-snap world, you know, you see the tied-up boats out in the harbour, you see the, 
the cars stacked up outside the stadium where obviously they've tried to clear as much out the way as they possibly can so that people can get on with their lives so that ships aren't in danger the few ships that are out at sea aren't sort of constantly crashing into unmanned vessels would you have liked to have seen more of the post-snap world the intervening years in this film I mean, yes and no. I think if I'd seen more of it, I would have been initially interested, but on repeat viewings, I'd be like, oh, this slows the film down massively. I think there's a lot of story to tell there, but equally, I think in terms of what this film is trying to do, there isn't a lot of story to tell there. So you catch up with what our characters have been doing for the past five years, and you get the impression that they've not been doing much else. So Black Widow has been trying to keep the Avengers together, whatever it is. She's kind of not succeeding because no one cares about it as much as she does. Cap is trying to help people by... You know, organising little self-help groups, which may be a, a reference to his friendship with Sam, because that's what Sam was doing when they met. You, so you get little snippets of what everybody's been up to. And I guess the suggestion is life has been on hold for a lot of people. I mean, the weirdest thing was you've still got that guy that works at the impound lot, because even though <laughs> probably all your bosses are gone, like why is he still there? I suppose in the midst of great tragedy, you might just stick to what you know. So there's the impression that just everything has just stopped for five years, more or less. Yeah, the world's been on hold and on pause. There was a little bit of me that wanted to see more of it, and I understand why, with the film being the length it is, you're talking about either that or you're making three films instead of two to wrap the saga up, the Infinity Saga up. And I think that, because we've described tone as well, one of the reasons is probably because tonally it would just get far too bleak. (laughs) You know, people have done multiple articles and I've read tons of stuff about what the world would actually be like if half the people suddenly went walkies, how people would be fed or get about how the world would be administered. There's so much that they talk about, about the world governments trying to reform and get a census and try and get the wheels in motion again. What about you, Aaron? I didn't need to see it, which is interesting because it's one of the most interesting things that they could have put in there and you definitely want to know because it's so catastrophic the idea that some countries out there must have just simply collapsed because they didn't have the infrastructure to survive such a hit and i believe that some countries would pull together but there would have been looting rioting and so on and there's going to be some countries where the 50 percent was most of the armed forces just because that's the way stats work. That could have happened. So there simply was nobody to provide an enforced order and to stop the chaos. So there's so much there, but it's a different show. It's a different film. It's not important for this because the film is about the conclusion of the character's plot lines. So, for example, Stark gets his complete transference from utterly selfish when you meet him to completely selfless when you see him go. And all the other characters have got their own journeys to complete in terms of their their story and their plots. And there are a lot of characters. So I'm happy to restrict this film to that with the plot line of defeating Thanos and uh, necessary action, of course, because it's, you know, it is superheroes. It is action. It is going to be an action film at some point, even with a meaning put in throughout the character development. So you've got so much there that I do not want to lose time to the background, even though it's as interesting as it is, even though it's a total disaster and must have affected everything. It's still too much, given what this film should be. If this was the second Avengers film in the series and you've got an arc still to go, 
then I would say the opposite. No, you have to set up the third arc using this disaster as your foundation. But as the final film, and I think we can call it the final film because the Spider-Man film's an epilogue rather than, than, than an actual ending. So as the final film, there's no place for as a plot line as big as the world in chaos. I'm happy to see it in the little areas you did see it. So you've mentioned the health self-help group, but mm. you get other little things like the kid that Scott Lang approaches and said, hey, what's going on? And the kid either assumes this guy is dangerous or insane, and either way, you don't waste time to talking to somebody like that, and he just rides his bike off as fast as he can. And there's no need for a kid to do that, even if the kid's a bit of a dick. He doesn't, doesn't need to behave like that. But in that implied background... Yeah, you get away from the mad person because you don't know what's going to happen. And even things like Barton, Barton's going around uh, taking revenge on the cartels, gives you the implication that the cartels have taken over in some places, and that is going to be horrible because we already know what the cartels are doing in the modern world without giving complete access to the right to run riot around empty cities. And there's so you a get, simpler aspect to Barton's mission as well. It's the idea that you know his family are gone, but all these terrible people are still around. So he's taking it upon himself to punish these terrible people for being lucky enough to survive. Well, that's Barton, but I'm really thinking about the background that's implied. You know that somebody's going to try and take advantage, and they discuss it that it's not one cartel. There are plenty of other bad things going on, and the comments from Black Widow when they're trying to arrange it, she is looking out for the people that are trying to take advantage. And they don't say that, but they make it clear by who she's asking them to look out for. So I reckon you see enough of these implications of the chaos to give you a sufficient picture of the background to acknowledge it's there. That's enough for this film to just use, put a nod to it, say, look, we understand this is what it, what it is. But that's as much as the plot is going to do with it, because we've got lots of other plot to deal with. And I do think that's the right choice. I was kind of hoping we'd see this world in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. just went and ignored it. Mm -hmm. And apparently it was because no one at Marvel Studios, because Marvel Studios and Marvel Entertainment are two completely different companies, that apparently don't like each other that much. So they weren't told what the end result would be. So for all they knew, it would be undone seconds after it happened. So... There would be no post-snap timeline story to explore, as far as they knew. So they just ignored it in, in favour of telling their own story. But we do have a bunch of Disney Plus stuff coming up, namely a Hawkeye series, which yeah. could flash back to this time and give us a bit more insight into how the world was actually working at that point. Because he was going around, he would see yeah. it more than anyone else, probably. Yeah. I think you're right, S.H.I.E.L.D. would have been the perfect place for this, and it's a shame that they didn't get that in there, because... They are the ones who are prime place to flesh this out. Although, arguably, S.H.I.E.L.D. is equally not the right people to flesh it out because having watched a few of the series, they are too close to Buffy the Vampire Slayer in tone to deal with anything so dark. And I know they've tackled dark subjects, but in anything I've seen, not nearly well enough to handle that kind of disaster so actually, i think it's not really the case with the show anymore actually it's um, it's not been like that for a number of years 
Uh, well, m maybe if they'd shifted, then they could handle it, but the shield I saw just wouldn't wouldn't be capable because the tones just wasn't right. Definitely the latest two seasons of the show, I think they possibly could have handled it. I think it would have been a slight tonal shift for the show, but it would have matched the subject matter in a way. It would have been really interesting to see, and I think the longer form of a TV thing is probably the way that we'd do it best. I didn't think about the Hawkeye show actually covering it, but that's an interesting angle actually. I think it's one of those things, I don't think they could have fitted more of it into this film. I think you're dead right with that. But I would like to see some little snapshots of this world. Because it, it pretty much gets ignored in Spider-Man Far From Home. Not you know massively ignored, but it's only sort of little riffy bits Rather yeah, than after the opening, they never mention yeah, it again. Really, pretty much, yeah. They make a nice gag out of it, and then they move on. Really, and the rest of the world all seems to just be fixed. It's all fine again. It's all been wiped clean. I think it would be an interesting place to revisit, and I get why tonally they couldn't do it in here, and I get why time-wise they couldn't do it here. But it would be an interesting thing to see again. One of the striking things is there's a couple of instances of it being not as bad as you might think it is. So you've got the bit where Cap says to Black Widow. I saw a pod of whales as it was coming over the bridge. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like whales swimming in the Hudson. It's like, there's fewer ships, cleaner water. It's not bad for whales in this whole snap world. And it just made me wonder about how much of a kicking the planet was going to take once everyone comes back. Yeah, well, I think a lot of the articles are, since everyone's come back, who's been farming all the food? Is there enough food now for a full planet's worth of people? Considering there's not been a full planet's worth of farmers or doctors or anyone about, are all the buildings still all right? Has anyone been maintaining it all? If you've got half the people, you need half the hospitals, half the doctor surgeries and half the schools. Yeah, the planet would take a right hit when it comes back. And that's kind of a good cap moment of him seeing positivity somehow <laughs> in almost any situation. You know, it's like, okay, this isn't great, this isn't the best situation, but guess what? Got to see some whales in Hudson, not seen yeah. that before. Well, Natasha, yeah. as good as says, yeah, I didn't hear that, I hear that. <laughs> you also have to wonder how much the population has grown in those five years, based, oh, on, the, based okay. on who was left, so you have to wonder what the actual population is post-return. Yeah, we're suddenly more. looking at nine billion people. Instead of, you know, 7 billion people. The government campaign to make more people. <laughs> yeah. We need to make up for what we've lost, folk. Get making babies. On you go. But one of the things that happens <laughs> posts things like, if you look at after the Second World War, that's the baby boomer generation, mm. isn't it? You know, everybody just has kids after these kinds of things because I guess you have a lot of lives lost over these conflicts and things. So the same thing would happen post-snap, you would think. you think people would distract themselves from this horrible thing by trying to bring some light into their lives through maybe having kids and have people that got together that couldn't or shouldn't have or didn't get together before because mm -hmm. there was obstacles in their way like fiancés or husbands or wives or whatever. You know, there's, um, you'll have all these relationships that have changed as a result of this. One example that I think of is, so you've got this wedding taking place and then the bride watches the groom disappear before her eyes, but the best man's still there. <laughs> the groom comes back in his wedding finery to find out his, well, wasn't quite his wife yet, has shacked up with the groom. <laughs> yeah, he's disappeared off with the best man. He's left standing in what was his wedding venue at the time. Yeah, there's all that sort of stuff that will probably never get covered. It is like an interesting set of stories. It would almost be a mini-series. Do you know what? It would be kind of half comedy and half drama series. 
just to have like do I don't know six stories of people pre and post snap could make it some sort of weird rom commy version. <laughs> a bride or a groom disappearing on the wedding day and ending up with one of the bridesmaids and then they come back. There'd be interesting little stories that you could do out of that. It's a shame I don't they know. don't do Maybe the one shots on the Blu-rays anymore because those could be yeah. those one shots. That, that would be the kind of thing that would work with that. Yeah. Or maybe they will come up with little one-off little skits or something like that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know what they're planning for Disney+, Plus. if they're planning some small-scale stuff or if it's all going to be bigger budget or I suppose you've got to get people to write all these things and we are very expensive. So, But now that you've saved some money on your Sony deal, you could just come over and pay for us. <laughs> Time will tell. Time will tell. Time will tell indeed. Speaking of which... We talked about time skip, the jump of, of five years, but of course the main plot device in this is the time heist itself. Now we've discussed time travel quite a lot on this podcast and on this network as well, strangely enough. So I was interested in how you thought time travel is going to impact the future of the MCU. We've got not just time travel, but sort of multiple realities a multiverse out there each one of these times that they've gone back to is sort of deviated from the course that it was already on or did it i mean mm. we're not clear on that well the insinuation is that you go back you put the stones back exactly where they were everything carries on as normal except that we know that we're getting at least one tv show in this alternate timeline one of them at least yeah, yeah. so we know there's at least one sort of alt version of what we've seen going about there. So that seems to sort of semi-confirm it. But the whole time travel element of it itself, were you convinced by their time explanation? I'll go to Aaron first, because I know that you're very strong on time travel mechanics, and if they stay true to it or not. I think you're right. I've actually spent some time on this watching it. I was drawing it out again. I was considering all the rules. I've got loads of notes on this, so we can tackle any part of it. Did you have a transparent whiteboard, like they do on every TV show where they talk about time travel. If did, only did, I could. <laughs> did you at any point fold a piece of paper in half and puncture a pen through the middle of it? <laughs> no, I didn't do that, no, but I did draw alternate reality timelines, so that's got to be close enough. All oh, right, that's close. So I have to say that despite everything I'm about to say, I don't believe that the time travellers was ruined my enjoyment. However... Looking into it, I think that the time travel is not in any way close to consistent in this. There are several problems. The biggest problem I have, I think, is the words of the Ancient One. Because I'm kind of okay with Bruce being wrong about time travel. Because he himself says, look, I'm not an expert. And even though he comes in arrogantly and tells Scott Lang how Back to the Future is wrong... Uh, and then is wrong himself. It, it kind of doesn't matter because you know, you're not an expert and you know you're not. But when the ancient one who's lived forever and whose very job is to hold the time stone seems to get things wrong, that started to bother me under analysis. I say not in the film. Do you know in the film itself, it didn't bother me. But when I'm sitting down there with my metaphorical whiteboards and pen punctured paper, on reflection there, it really bothered me. But there is actually no hope for this. I mean, we could actually cut this to pieces, but given that the director has come out and said that they believe the exact opposite is true to what the writers believe is true, (laughs) 
we have no hope of any form of consistency here anyway. So if before we go into this too deeply, given that foundation point, how deeply do we want to go into this, given that it is not possible to resolve it? I think we should just go all the way down that rabbit hole. Okay. Legion. Why not? Why are this, we here otherwise? This is what the second podcast is here for. Is <laughs> okay. just to discuss the things that couldn't be discussed on the other podcast. Every time we mentioned it on the other podcast, Natalie said, my head hurts and it killed the conversation. So this is the time. This is it. This is well, the only t- chance we're getting. To be fair, I can understand why her head hurts because if you try and put it together, it is impossible because the rules that are established get broken so quickly and that means there isn't any way of actually putting this together in such a way as to give you a nice calm head it's the same okay when banner's rule gets broken because he doesn't know but then you kind of have to assume the ancient one should know so when her rule gets broken you lose a bit of confidence and then when you're trying to resolve that, you kind of want to get help from the film itself because then you can say, okay, well, it doesn't necessarily make sense from the character's perspective, but maybe they don't understand it. So let's try and put it together afterwards. And there's too much that's left unconstructed. So I'm left with, as I think it's stated, the return of the stones, as they describe it, creates an infinite loop of alternate universes being created, which will fill the universal multiverse with infinite energy. And presumably that's a bad thing if energy is infinite, but that's, maybe it's not infinite. Uh, maybe that's not a problem. I mean, you can have an infinite loop of, of alternate universes created. But even that kind of resolves you. I think you have to work from the foundation that there is something that causes an alternate reality to be created. Logic demands every single action that doesn't fit with the existing timeline because surely human consciousness doesn't affect physics. So it can't just be human choice. It has to be every single atom that falls into the wrong place creates a different universe. But then it's a comic book universe, so maybe they can take a shortcut and it's just an infinity stone being in the wrong place that creates an alternate universe. But even if you do that, I think you're still stuck with physics rearing its ugly head just because you can't get around the idea that nebula kills her younger self thanos is destroyed therefore the universe that is required to create this universe doesn't exist anymore so you can't actually resolve it down to it's only infinity stones being moved around that can create new universes because thanos dying before he can actually give rise to his original universe will Surely you have to use alternate realities to counter that paradox. Therefore, we must have just masses of alternate realities out there where every single atom falling is giving rise to an alternate reality. But maybe we do settle on that because then that gives you infinite Disney TV shows to work with. They've got their one where they've got the second Tesseract with Loki. Everybody can say, right, that is definitely one. That's an Infinity Stone, alternate reality, brilliant, off we go. But if you make it such that, yeah, any action causes an alternate reality, they've got infinite TV shows. I mean, they've already got infinite money, but they've now officially created a way of giving themselves infinite money through just saying, right, alternate universe number one, two, three, four, infinite. Yeah, but I mean, arguably we already have an alternate universe because Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is set in one where the snap clearly doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, well, uh, go, but yeah. where Thanos still did. 
because yeah. they referred to him quite heavily in the, the season before the, the most recent one. So I guess you have to assume that in that universe he failed or something happened that meant that he didn't snap everybody out of existence, which you've already got one of that multiverse already. You can almost yeah. argue that for the, the Marvel TV shows, the Netflix ones, to be in and out. Apparently there's a scene in Punisher Season 2 that's clearly set after the snap, but there is no snap. Apparently it is clear, but there is none, yeah. Well, if you I look mean, at the date, it's you know it's post-snap, but it's not, because mm-hmm. nobody's disputed. Yeah. I mean, in this, I mean, we've got the, the Loki escape. We've also got, presumably now, a universe without Thanos, because he travelled in time to our present timeline and got wiped out. So that universe will be Thanos-less-less-ness. Yep. So there's another alternate. I don't think they tread on too many butterflies back in the 70s, but I'm sure they'll have done something there that, <laughs> that caused a change. Well, I suppose they returned the Tesseract, but they took the Tesseract, so, you know. They returned, they took it, yeah, so would there have been increased security after that? Would there something else have changed? I don't know. Would people have been investigated? Would Hydra have been found? Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> but they don't it's... return the second Tesseract. They don't specifically go after Loki after he stole that second Tesseract and bring that back. Well, I suppose they could do. Maybe Captain America did do that, but that could be resolved in the Loki TV series, I suppose. Yeah, I think it's that version of Loki that we're following, that's the implication. It must be, yeah. Yeah. No, it seems to be a fun way to do it, but I, I get what you're saying about it breaking its rules quite quickly, and I didn't think of Nebula killing her past self either, actually. Well, that doesn't matter, because that entire Thanos army is gone anyway from that Yeah, that's the, that timeline version, multiverse version was gone, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's just important though from the perspective that it does by definition create I think an alternate reality. I don't think you can limit it that the alternate reality is being created by the removal of infinity stones which the ancient one implies but doesn't say so she might not have meant that. She said something about the infinity stones together in one universe create the what we perceive as the flow of time. Yes. So they have to be together and people say what about the ones that Thanos destroyed? Although the basic tenet of physics is you can't create or destroy anything. All you can do is change it. So in our universe that we've been following, the stones are still there. They've just been reduced to atoms. But the actual atoms that make them up are still there. So arguably they're still in the universe. So arguably they still perform the same function. If you remove, say, the time stone from that ancient one universe, then that creates issues. And there's something about the forces of darkness being mentioned. Yeah. Which is unclear, so, but possibly be picked up in the Doctor Strange sequel, considering it's called The Multiverse of Madness. Well, yes. We know a little bit more than we did back when we did the first podcast in terms of speculation. So I actually found an article on theringer.com where a quantum physicist talks about the time travel in Endgame, because apparently quantum physicists have nothing better to do. <laughs> Please, all of the quantum physicists are watching the comic Yeah, show, I know, sure. but he basically talks about all the stuff they reference. Stark talks about the Planck scale and the Deutsch proposition, which I don't really know what those things are, I'll confess, because not a quantum physicist. But this quantum physicist says they're referenced and are referenced incorrectly. I'm not going to read the entire article, but I will put it in the show notes, and I'll try and kind of refer to it as I'm puzzling this out so i think the multiverse angle works up until a point it works up until the point you've got old steve sitting on a bench because he doesn't return and i know the writers have said oh yeah peggy's kids are steve's kids which actually throws a bit of shade over the relationship 
I use in inverted commas, <laughs> he has with Sharon Carter in Civil War, going, she would be his niece. Ugh, that's disgusting. Leia and Luke sort of scenario there, almost. But the way I looked at it is, essentially what you're touching on there in this infinite loop of multiverse stuff. So what you've got is you've got another version of Endgame that played out, and then a version of Steve travel back, and that created our universe, where he lives to be an old man, kind of in the background of the universe, until he gets to the point that he gives Sam the thing. And that keeps repeating, but it keeps creating an alternate universe where the same thing keeps happening. Yeah, my way of viewing it is that we've always been watching the universe where Steve Rogers managed to get back in time. Have you seen the stuff where it's like, is this old Steve at Peggy's funeral in Civil War? (laughs) And I mean, it's just some old guy that you never see his face, so it could be. You think Steve would recognise himself, but you know, he was distracted at the time. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing is, it's like you don't really want them sort of going and post and going, yeah, 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 here he was here in this corner, behind this wall, behind this pillar, behind this box. The thing it raises is that would Steve Rogers just sit by and let everything happen as it did, knowing the way things turn out? Because he knows it turns out all right in the end. Or is there this film series of films or something waiting to happen where they show how he's gently tweaked stuff along the way to make sure it all actually turned out all right in the end? I don't know. It's one of those ones. It's like, do you believe that he went to Peggy and said, yep, I've uh, been to the future. Uh, Here I am. By the way, I'm telling you absolutely diddly. (laughs) Hail Hydra. (laughs) Go back to work. I don't know. You know, there's a part of me that's like, would he, would he really just let that fly? Yeah, I don't know. I kind of believe he would. Because I think he believes that the way it all turns out is maybe good enough. And the stuff he went through with his friends, with the Avengers, is worth keeping around. He doesn't want to change that as such. Also, there's no guarantee that making any changes would improve the timeline in mm. any way. That's another problem you have when you're messing around with, with causality. He could make a change. He could out Hydra in the 60s or whenever, and then it could be even worse because they do stuff that they didn't do before. You know, they weren't waiting for that moment to strike as, as they were before, so it could create something worse. So maybe he just leaves well enough alone because at least he knows this one turns out okay. Good point. Unfortunately, I think it's something that doesn't actually bear proper analysis because I don't think it can resolve well which is why I stand by that statement that I didn't mind the time travel in this film whilst I wasn't trying to think about it. If you just go with the emotion of it and the plot journey, he gets his reward by having his happily ever after with the woman he loved. And I think you have to leave it there, unfortunately. As soon as I try and start to get further into that by analysing who Captain America is... And what he would do, I'm stuck with the idea that this is the guy who said in response to the Sokovia Accords, you must always do the right thing. You can't get yourself caught up in bureaucracy or what the rules are. You must always do what your heart tells you and it will always be the right thing. And the very idea that that character could stand by knowing that a Hydra agent is about to kill some innocent bystander going, yeah, but the rules of the universe say it's all going to work out fine in the end if I just let that person die horribly. I have to think that that character in America would actually turn to himself and go, nope, I trust my heart. I'm going to save the innocent person and just trust that the universe is going to work itself out when I create another alternate reality here. 
And mm. I just don't believe he could ever stand by in the shadows because that's not the person I've seen built up it's, over it's, the last three arcs. It's one of those ones that you see on TV shows where they do time travel every once in a while, which is that they go back and they purposefully don't interact with everyone. They don't alter the timeline in any way or they attempt not to alter the timeline in any way and then find out that they actually were supposed to affect the timeline because things are not turning out the way they were supposed to. Yeah. And I kind of have the feeling that Cap would have that doubt in his head, going, oh, no, hang on, did I always do this? Did I always fix this or not break this or yes. not try and, and you know, I, I don't know. I think that dilemma would be there. As much as the let's not break the timeline would be there, it would also be that, hang on, I must have done this the last time because this is not heading the way I thought it was. So there's another counter-argument to that as well. Maybe he does make changes, and that's what ends up resulting in the universe we have. It just turns out that he mm. was supposed to help shape it, or helps shape it in some way. You know, the, It goes back to what I said about, you can't predict what the actual consequences of any action you take will be. Even if you're from the future, and you think you know that preventing this will create this better world, might not. And you could have this scenario where Steve is operating in the shadows. He's trying to bring down Hydra, but they're too big. You know, there's not enough people that believe him. There's not enough people he can trust because he still doesn't know who he can trust. Maybe the first thing he does once he sees Peggy, he tells her everything. And he only has a limited control because she doesn't want to get found out as being this agent against Hydra because she'll just be killed because that's what happened to Howard Stark. That's what happens to anyone else that stands in their way. They're quickly snuffed out. So there's all that to consider. So you could have Steve being there in the shadows working to make the world a better place and kind of accidentally creating the reality we know as it is because that's the best he could do. Unfortunately, I think to me that's the bit that doesn't bear analysis because, again, if, given that you've only really got the history of Captain America to work with, you have to compromise that character in order to make that work. And if it was a random other person, I would say everything you have said is possible. But it's not a random other person. It's It's not some other spy hidden in the background. It's Captain America. He's bold. He's in your face. He is the person that can actually defeat World War II by himself. You believe it when you look at him. He, he takes on the world-bending problems. He does solve them. The idea that he conveniently would be beaten by Hydra because he needs to be, otherwise the timeline is in place. It just doesn't match. He could definitely bring Hydra down based on all the accomplishments we've seen in the past. It just seems so based on the character we've been given. He's not the sneaky spy. He's not another S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. He is the superhero along with Tony Stark. They are the frontline superheroes. So it doesn't fit the story as we've been given. It intellectually fits, but it doesn't bear analysis because that intellectual possibility it just isn't enough to stand up i think under what we've seen well grant it doesn't help that the two major creative forces on this film don't agree on how their, the rules of their own universe works well this is what help. i said to you how yeah. how deep do you want to go into this yeah. abyss because it is by definition two different abysses and they can't agree which of them mm. is the real abyss yeah i think that we're all in agreement with the fact that it didn't actually take us out of the film at the time when you watch it and that's yeah, the kind of, of the thing about this podcast that we're doing today is it's, uh, it's like a retrospective of having time to actually think about it, knowing some of the films that have come after and what they're proposing to do after and sort of looking into it. It's that filmmaking trick. What they do is they deliver you that satisfying, really powerful Steve's final scene moment with Sam where he hands over the shield 
you find out he had a happy ending and at that point you really don't care what the details of how he got there are because you're just like Oh, he deserves this. He's got his yeah. dance, and the music's playing over the credits, and it's lovely. And you go, yeah. oh, that's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is, however, one thing in all of this that is unforgivable that I can't let go. And the rest of it, I'll give them. The rest of it, I'll just let slowly absorb itself into the emotion and, and vanish away into inconsequence. But the one thing that I cannot forgive them is they said... Oh my God, how could you possibly think back to the future was in any way any good because it had terrible, terrible rules for their time travel and then go on and have awful rules for your time travel. <laughs> that's, that's an arrogance that is that's unforgivable true. and they must immediately apologize to Back to the Future for me to <laughs> tolerate any more time think, travel in this nonsense. I think what they were doing there is they were using popular films to exemplify their own time travel rules. So by citing Back to the Future, Terminator... And all the other films that Rhodey has apparently spent the last five years watching. Hot Tub Time Machine. Yeah. Uh, Bill and Ted. Yeah. What, die Hard. Oh, that's die like, Hard, yeah. yeah die Hard's <laughs> I mean, the next film probably will be. Yeah, why not? They've done everything else stupid <laughs> with that franchise now. So it's them saying to us, this isn't how it works. All the stuff you understand about time travel from these other movies, that's not how ours works. If you're talking about lowest common denominator in the audience, that's fine. That's a easy simplified explanation forget what you know about time travel we're doing it this way and then they proceed to do it exactly the same way yeah well and you know i think this has to stand as an unforgivable moment i don't think we can challenge that <laughs> to leave it there. i mean we've talked about cap there and i suppose we should move on to talking about some of the characters and what happens unless people have got anything else about time travel but again how far down that rabbit hole do you want to go <laughs> anything else? i think it's safer to turn around now and stay with the happy i think can you write a full article for the website here? Okay. <laughs> I feel that we should have a link in the show notes to Aaron's thesis on oh, time like travel that. and the MCU. I like that. You could do a feature. I, yeah, it's got to be a featured article with like the little take pictures of the drawings of your virtual whiteboard that you've done and just explain it that way. I'd like to read that, please. I know you I'm not the commissioner. You've committed me but... to a bit of work. That's just not fair, is it, really? <laughs> but you've, you've already done so much of it. You've already done so much. I think you'll enjoy it, and that's the thing. Actually, I wouldn't enjoy it, because it would take me away from that happy ending <laughs> moment. That's where I want to stay. <laughs> but we've just got to put a picture of, like, happy cap dancing at the end of your article, and then that'll make you feel better when you scroll I, down. Once you reach the bottom, you'll be like, oh. i tell you what I'll agree to doing. I will agree to do it upon the same time frame that we have committed to with the recording and delivering of the Time Travel Podcast. (laughs) It will arrive at some point. We don't know when. It might have already arrived at the time that you're hearing this. There you go. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) I like that. It's a whole series of papers on time travel. But anyway, we'll we'll, we'll start with the MCU and we'll work our way up. Yeah, I want to read this now. You have to do it. Totally do. You will have oh. possibly already read this in the future at some point. It's either that or we are borrowing a whiteboard from somewhere and getting you to present it as an actual lecture. 200th podcast. Yeah. Lecture but, on time travel. No one will attend. Yeah, have contacts in the Science Festival. It's happening. So many crazy promises. I will quite gladly give up my spot teaching how transmitters work in order for a time travel uh, lecture to be presented. Moving on to characters, and like I say, since we've been talking about Captain America, I, I suppose we should talk about the resolution we get from him. It looks like he's going to come back, and then 
we find out that he's decided that he's going to do something for himself. He's going to go back and he's going to get some of that. I'm trying to remember the line. Some of that life that Tony was talking about. Yeah, although Tony wasn't the one to talk about it. It was Nat. So yeah, that's true. In, in the film itself. I mean, I imagine Tony probably told him to get a life at some point, but not in this film. Yeah, you don't know. Maybe that's a chat that's missing in this film. I kind of feel that there's a chat between Tony and Cap about having a daughter in family life and getting away from the superhero thing. Because it seems at that point that Tony has taken a massive step back and has got nothing to do. That we do know that he's built a massive robot army in the sky, which is revealed in a later film. But <laughs> it appears that he's got nothing to do with... Well, he's had five years, you know. Um, you know. Morgan sleeps sometimes. What else are you going to do? Yeah, he, he built the robot army in the first three months and then, <laughs> then he was fine to have the family life. See, on that point about it not referring to something in this film, that's not a thing, though, is it? Because I started to count up the number of referrals to previous films. I'm just going to... 3, 6, 9, 12... I got to 14 referrals to previous films before I gave up and thought, ah, in almost every paragraph there's a referral to a previous film. There's a million callbacks, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the idea that he needs to have said about get a life in this film no he doesn't they're always about saying what tony had said to him in a previous film films and films ago and so i think it's that general perspective on life that's being referred to here that tony's been talking about rather than that specific get a life comment in this film the only example i can think of is an age of ultron where in their final conversation in that film tony says maybe i'll build pepper a farm and hope no one blows it up so that's basically what he does in this film, actually, funnily enough. It's not quite a farm, but it's the same sort of thing. It's a peaceful mm. lake house, I guess. And then he says to Cap, you'll get there one day. And he's like, nah, this is my life, that kind of thing. But it's just because in this particular film, Natasha does say to him, I think you need to get a life. It's around about the whale pod conversation. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. It's un- it's kind of unimportant what's said in this film. Yeah. It's all mm-hmm. about referrals back to previous. I bet if we did do that ultimate three-day marathon and watched all the films back to back, we would find a couple of points where Stark says something relevant. It would be yeah, one of those maybe. little counters that you would need to have running in the bottom corner of the screen. Yes. <laughs> you yes. know, where it's just tallying up how many times it refers to something else. Somebody's or- going to do that, you know. That's going to happen soon. It probably already exists. Somebody Google it, it'll be there. <laughs> Everything else we say doesn't already exist. When we Google it, it does exist in Legion forms. So. <laughs> yeah, we will it into existence by saying we're the, we're the only ones that have done this. And then yeah. it turns out there's about a million people that have done it. Right. <laughs> yeah, so we were talking about Cap, that's what it was. Yeah. yeah, I think the handling of Cap in this film is actually quite simple in a lot of ways. I mean, you are building up to the point where he's willing to do something selfish, but throughout he's the guy he's always been more or less you know he's the one that kind of pushes forward rallies the troops he's trying to help people in his own way through the self-help group which is a nice moment for him but he's the only one that seems to be coping actually out of everybody else until you know they have a plan and then as soon as they find out he has a plan he's like right superhero time this is where i can shine i'm just gonna give speeches until everyone does what i want and everyone does. It's the moment when they're on this sort of time platform thing and he gives the rousing speech and I think it's Ant-Man that turns to say, is it Rocket? He goes, oh, he's good at this. And Rocket <laughs> says, he's really good at Oh, that. there you and, go. And <laughs> Scott says, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that could actually be, in a lesser film, an, an example of undercutting a cool moment with a joke. 
but it's like what everybody's thinking in that moment, so it works. I think it is that kind of thing that, like you say, he is the one that seems to be coping the best out of it. Maybe I'm wrong in that. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was a Banner, he seems to be doing all right. Banner. Banner seems to be doing awesome out of it. (laughs) I mean, you know, we talk about the developments for uh, Cap in this film, but, like, one of the biggest character transitions that you get in this is actually, you know, where you transition to smart Hulk. (laughs) You know, Dr. Hulk in this. Really... So a discussion we had in the last one was a question that Andrew's wife had was, has Banner destroyed the Hulk? Because we have spent a lot of time establishing that they are two separate entities. And now this version of the Hulk is Banner. There is no Hulk. Even mm. when his soul is ripped out of his body by the ancient one, it's Banner's soul. The Hulk is not there. Don't let me go on without coming back to Captain America because I've got something to say on that. But okay. see on Banner, this is the only character development that I would say is not character development. It's complete break. It is just a convenient jumping over. In five years, something really interesting and amazing happened between these two entities, and we will never get to see it. Because it's an unearned development where he's completely become at peace and is somehow harnessing the power of anger by not being angry at all anymore. So... I agree that Hulk must be gone because he's not angry. He's never angry. He even has trouble being angry when he has to start going around twatting cars to look like the previous Hulk. (laughs) So it's almost like this whole Jekyll and Hyde story has been completely surgically removed to be replaced with some guy who conveniently has superpowers and superintelligence. Yeah, so Banner has committed murder, in effect. Well, possibly, but, but we don't know because we need the subtle details of that in these five years that's occurred how has he managed to retain the the body by getting rid of the hulk because presumably it can't even be as simple as destroying that personality because of the whole anger thing so i i mean it, it, it again it, to my mind it's another one that you can't analyze because you want to kind of simplify it down to a pattern because that's what humans do and i also search for that obviously but if you try and analyze the pattern you can't find one. You come against a jagged edge and then a new pattern starting. Well, thankfully, Ruffalo still has a couple of films left in his contract, so we will <laughs> see the Hulk again. And if the comics are anything to go by, which they probably should be, the real Hulk, you know, he's had it before where he's suppressed the Hulk, where he thinks he's got rid of the Hulk and he's able to control the brawn and all that kind of stuff. But the real Hulk always creeps through. He's always buried deep in and he'll come back. Yeah. And maybe that'll be the subject of his next appearance, that you'll have the actual Hulk that's kind of buried under the banner persona comes out to exact some kind of revenge. Hopefully. That's what I want to see. Because you never got the resolution of that tiff that we're having in Infinity War either. No, and that's the big problem, actually, because all of the other characters are given resolution. I I think pretty much everybody is given an ending to their particular plot lines, except Bruce whose plot line is just shaken off into the void and forgotten about. It doesn't get an ending because they've actually managed to discard the beginning. He is pretty much just a big green scientist with no origin story at all. And maybe they did that because they know he'll be back. Maybe. Let's say, I hope for what you've just suggested. I think that would be good to see it. And then it would actually say, now we saved one ending because we've got a better story we wanted to tell. And I would have to say, brilliant, you win. I'd definitely like to see it played out i think it's one of the things that's missing you know we we talked about that five-year gap and what we'd like to see and i think that's definitely one of the things that's in there 
Yeah, well, the thing is, the Hulk is definitely a separate being to Banner. That mm. is clear. When you get to Ragnarok, it's pretty clear that they are not the same person. And then in Infinity War, they are kind of arguing because they're, again, not the same person. And then suddenly you get to Endgame and you've got, okay, I put the brain and the brawn together, but you're still Banner. You are the Banner personality. But you're just not tortured at all because I guess he feels in control for the first time and since mm. he can remember, I guess. So now he just, yeah, he's quite frivolous and he's loving life because he, I guess he feels that he doesn't have anything to fight against anymore until real Hulk comes back. <laughs> Bring it back to Captain yeah, America yeah, yeah. then. Go for it. So I say every other character does get their resolution and clearly the final resolution for Cap is dancing with Peggy Carter. So I get that. But I think that does skip over Mjolnir, which is quite an important end point of maybe an implied plot line, even if it's not explicitly stated. Because if you accept that he is now finally worthy, where he previously wasn't worthy, then there has to have been some form of character development to say, well, how did he get there and what was he missing? And I think it is implied through Civil War. There was more in Civil War that I think we got when I was thinking about it much later and too late for the podcast, I guess, unfortunately. But this idea that Captain America is having a struggle with the right thing. He has to go to Peggy Carter's funeral to make his mind up about what he thinks is the right thing. And before that point, he must therefore have been in some form of turmoil of whether he should or should not sign the accords, whether he should or should not take certain actions. And then he has the revelation at the funeral and then makes up his mind. And unless you can tell me that the occurrence of Mjolnir is something I've managed to forget in other films... I think it's after that funeral revelation then that he only picks up Mjolnir here in Endgame. Before then, he's tried to pick it up at a party scene before that funeral. So his development is, you thought you knew with confidence what the right thing was, this global absolute right thing that you follow and think is more important than any rules of humanity and so on. But you didn't have the confidence, you didn't have the commitment to it, you didn't have the heart of Thor, the god of thunder, to really stand by your convictions. But after the funeral, after his commitment to actions in Civil War, everything he does after that through Infinity War is presumably with that commitment. He doesn't waver, and therefore when he picks up Mjolnir, it is that badge of honour that says... This is the final Captain America. You have now got the one true, pure hero that was actually almost there, but didn't quite make it. But now here he is wielding this hammer. So, you know, it's done. And there's an end point. So I admit he might not get necessarily a lot of development here in this film. I think the the idea of the self-help group and the picking up Mjolnir shows that in the previous films, he has had his development, and we're just giving you the satisfaction of the proof of that, and there's his ending. And then going on to Peggy Carter is actually the reward. That's not really the culmination of his development, it's the reward for the development that is then 
proven by Mjolnir. So I think it's important to seal the stuff that you get with Cap because it rounds it off more than anything else over several films that he, of course, stars quite a lot in and has had the development throughout. I guess part of the issue is they've never really defined what worthiness is in any of these films. Even though we ostensibly had a whole film about Thor becoming reworthy of the hammer, but I never really got the sense of what that worthiness was. You'd think with the Viking perspective, it would have to be some kind of pure of heart warrior. But again, what does that mean? So Cap almost lifting the hammer in Age of Ultron is an interesting one because no one else can even budge it, but he does. And, you know, Thor notices it and feels a bit nervous about it. And then in this film, he's celebrating it. He's like, oh, I knew it. I knew it all along. You were always worthy of whatever. So you just have to wonder if Cap was like, he noticed he'd budged it in Age of Ultron and thought, <laughs> I'm just going to leave this here because it's too complicated if I suddenly lift this up. And that would, if that was true, remove all of this complex emotion from what I think I've seen and shine a big glaring psychedelic light on something that was actually meaningful. So I desperately hope that's not true. <laughs> It's a cool moment, though. It's a really good sort of fan service moment. You know, you're seeing Thor getting absolutely hit to pieces by Thanos, and then you just see the hammer lift. It's brilliant. It's the better um, version of the Ray lifting the lightsaber in the Force Awakens moment. Mm. It's a better version of that. That's true, actually. I didn't think of it like that. I mean, what you said, Aaron, as well, I kind of get where you're coming from. It's like, what developments happened? It was like he was almost... Because you did see it sort of wobble in Ultron. There was the hint that it might actually lift, but yeah, you've either got to say that he was almost there, he was almost ready, and then enough time has passed that he's truly worthy of it. Yeah. Because I don't know. It serves an important mechanical purpose. On his own, Cap is no match for Thanos. But I when d- he has yeah. Mjolnir, suddenly, you know, packs a punch. But even at that, seeing him combine it with the shield as well, he sort of throws it at the shield so that it, the sound bounces back yeah. and knocks him off guard and stuff. It's that combo effort. And then when he's fighting alongside for further on in the fight, and they end up swapping between the axe and the hammer. Yeah, and that was a callback to their battlefield camaraderie they had in previous films mm. as well. You know, they're the two warriors. And they always have been. I think it was a really neat moment. And it's interesting when you put it that way, actually, is what's changed in Cap to now make him worthy. I like that. Though I don't know if it's like it needs enough time to work out an average. I don't know. I don't know how the science of the hammer works. It's like, could a baby pick up the hammer because there's no way to tell if the baby's worthy or not worthy yet? It's not carried off enough actions in its life to be worthy or not worthy of the hammer. Obviously not strong enough to pick up the hammer, but but in theory, could the baby pick up the hammer? Discussion in Age of Ultron, you put it in an elevator, the elevator still goes down, elevator's not worthy. (laughs) Again, something that doesn't bear too much analysis because it removes the majesty of the moment. Well, back when the Big Bang Theory was good, they had quite a good scene where they were debating the mechanics of Thor's hammer. You know, the Hulk throws Thor, who's holding the hammer, by the transit of property. Hulk is holding the hammer. But when Big Bang Theory was good was something like a thousand years ago. So, again, doesn't really bear too much analysis. Time travel. (laughs) (laughs) I see this as an absolute win. (laughs) I just think his ending is lovely where he speaks to Sam. For some reason, doesn't want to speak to Bucky. Just, nah. Bucky, you stay there. Don't want to talk to you anymore. (laughs) I'm going to talk to Sam. I'm going to give him the shield. Because this will be fun to watch later. Watch them fight over it. Be jealous. 
it's a really nice moment and I think it's really well acted and obviously it ties into what happens in the comics because Sam becomes the new Captain America but with wings later on so that's what's going to happen next in the Falcon and Winter Soldier series and it feels appropriate because you've seen enough time spent between Steve and Sam that yeah you could almost frame it as he was training a replacement even though he kind of wasn't but their friendship is well established and I think that's a nice little final nod to that. I definitely think it's a neat way of doing it and I like that handover. I also like the fact that it's going to be a TV show and not just going straight into a film. I think it's going to give it time to bed in, which is nice. There's something about that that I quite like. I mean, I know that primarily it's probably there to sell subscriptions and whatnot, but I do like the fact that it's getting a little bit of time to breathe rather than going heads first into a film. Yeah, I don't mind that Disney are taking my money as long as I'm happy to give them my money. <laughs> it's basically, and at the moment they're making stuff that makes me want to pay them for it, so I'm quite happy to let them do that. Yeah, if they want to make any bids for Neil before blog and the podcast, we're open to bids. <laughs> That's it. You can own us. It's fine. We like your stuff anyway, so it's, yep. it's all good. There you go. If I have to pretend to like the Lion King, then so be it. <laughs> Damn it, don't spoil the deal now, man. <laughs> don't spoil the deal now. But we've already talked a little bit about Hulk. And I suppose we were talking about Thor there with Cap. And Thor, for me, is one of the most interesting storylines through this. You can take him two ways in this, and people have argued either side of him being played for laughs, but also this completely tragic angle that you've got through here, where just everything has finally built up and broken for. Where all the things that he's been through in all these films has all added up to what we end up with, this fat, depressed, alcoholic version of Thor that I just wasn't expecting in this film, I've got to be honest. The sight of Chris Hemsworth in a fat suit is funny. I've got to go for that right away. But the fact that the character is just so broken in this film, I found surprising. He's just completely gone. Until he finds out at Asgard that he's still worthy, he's broken and in bits. The emotional journey in that introductory scene is excellent, actually, because, again, in the cinema, as soon as everyone sees Fat Thor, everyone laughs. Your entire audience is in stitches. But then you get this point where you see the darkness in it later on and you know it's a minute later on it's not that much later where it's like oh look at this guy he's, he's not in a good way and rocket's making fun of him and that's funny because his lines are funny and rocket's a dick and then hulk's like thor are you okay and he's like yeah i'm fine it's like you're definitely not fine and it's really impressive how it makes you go from that oh, that's hilarious because chris hemsworth's usually ripped and now he's not and then you go through the well this is a symptom of something really deep-seated and i think the way they keep that going throughout the film is, is really good because Hemsworth's a funny guy. We learned that in Ragnarok above anything else. He's very funny. His comic timing's great. And I still think he manages to make you laugh throughout. I think when he's rambling on about the ether and not going anywhere with it, you know, that everyone's just, get him off the stage, get him off the stage, hmm. he's lost it. That's a funny moment, but it also belies that little tragic undertone to it because he's not functioning. He's really struggling, and it's all a symptom of that victory that he has that's meaningless. Because every other battle he's won has had some purpose to it, has led to something better in his life, but defeating Thanos is empty. 
because he doesn't bring the universe back. Defeating him is just killing someone who's pretty weak at that point as well. So it's, it's nothing to him, really. That's true. He catches someone at their weakest moment. He takes it out of anger and then just is full of that regret. I really enjoyed Thor in this film because you get a bit of everything. He even gets a character arc in the singular film, which some of the others don't. Cap gets the rounding off, but but Thor actually has a, a full arc and every part of it is fun to watch. He is the broken hero at the start, desperate for some form of victory and gets nothing out of it. And then he is the god who cannot fail, who has completely failed, and that turns him into a depressed human. It actually turns him from the divine into the mortal. And then he comes back at the end, much as he says he is, not by what he should be, but what he actually is. And he's got his humor back, where he is teasing the hell out of Star-Lord. And you're thinking, that's actually really funny at that moment, the two of them. It's even funny just with Chris Hemsworth giving you a cheeky grin, mm. which is then, you know, enough to upset the person he's trying to upset. So the whole part of it is, as you said, some of these things are stunningly acted, just to get so much of a variation from one character in one plot from a singular film. And yeah, you see all sides of Thor in this one with humour, tragedy, everything thrown into the mix. Very well delivered. And his conversation with his mother is very telling in terms of where he's at at that point and how he feels about that loss. You never really got closure on that loss yeah, because he never got to have a conversation with her because there was so much going on at the time. And it kind of redeems that film that you hate, Aaron, as well. In some ways, it adds meaning to it that wasn't necessarily there before. Yeah, the meaning is in this film, not that film. So let's not use big words like redeem here. (laughs) But I will say that that point where he's talking to his mother is actually one of my highlights of the film because it is so powerful and it's delivered in such a way as it actually dodges little pitfalls. There's a few pitfalls throughout this where... I think a plot trope could come in and it doesn't. I think the Nebula having two presences in the film and they could have done a lot with mistaken identity, which would have rubbed me up the wrong way. And here with Thor's mother, they could have gone down the route of the arrogance of motherhood, which is, I have had a child and therefore now I'm amazing and know everything because I am simply able to wear the badge of mother. And they don't do that. She actually has the true power of motherhood in that she is able to accept her son, motivate her son, show love. And she does all that without trying to sell herself as something great, which is that true power of motherhood. It's this almost infinite resource of power that is completely selfless. And I just thought the writers there deserved a bit of an accolade for for having managed to get the true meaning of something in without falling into a pit trap, which would have made it trite. Instead, it actually gives you a a truly emotional scene. So not only is Thor done well, but I think his mother has done really well in a very small period of time. And it's also the last thing she can teach him as well. Or it's the last thing he needs to learn from his parents to kind of... 
put them behind them. Because yeah. in Ragnarok, he gets that final moment with Odin where he realises what it truly means to be a leader. Maybe it's undercut by all the jokes that are flying around at the time, but at the same time, it's that Asgard's not a place, it's a people. That's the lesson he needed to learn from his dad. Yeah. And he needed to learn that his power has nothing to do with his hammer and, you know, all those kind of life-affirming things. But, yeah, from his mother, he learns the no, no, it's okay to be flawed. doesn't matter if you're a king. And you don't even have to be a king, actually. It's up to you. So, yeah go in your own direction that's that lesson that he needs to learn and he learns it well because he says to valkyrie i'm done with this it was never me in fact i spent three films rejecting this life for myself so you do it the fact that he sort of comes to that reasoning you go from the first film where he's desperate to be king to the point where he hands it away he goes i'm not going to be able to rule anymore you're going to be a better ruler than me it's time for me to to pass on i've done what i can do i think it's quite neat and like you say aaron we get the jokey version of him back once he's with the guardians of the galaxy i hope they don't completely blot that out and just skip it i hope we do get to see some of the as guardians of the galaxy i don't know if we're going to get it well was it love and funders coming out first is that right yeah yeah so do you think we're going to see any of it there, or do you think they're just going to completely blot that out? He's going to get dropped off of the ship, the ship's going to fly away, and that's going to be it. <laughs> I suppose it depends. It depends when they're planning to set the Guardians film versus the Thor film. You know, he could reference an adventure that he had with the Guardians that um, we don't see yet. Oh, that's could, true, actually, yeah. yeah. Could happen. But yeah, I think there's a lot of potential in the As Guardians of the Galaxy thing for just one film. You know, I don't want to see too much of it, because I feel like Chris Pratt and Chris Hemsworth riffing off each other would great on me after a while. But there's certainly something to be mined there. And it yeah. suits where Thor is at this point in his development as well. And I think you were touching on here and the clarity that he has by the end of the film. And I think that starts to come in after the attack on the compound. You know, once it's reduced to rubble and you've got the big three standing there looking at Thanos and ready to take him on. And Thor is, he's ready for action at that point. There's no doubt in his mind what he's put on this earth to do at this moment in time. And that's kill him properly this time. He's, he has such conviction behind that. Yeah, he's not the fat, depressed alcoholic anymore. He is king of Asgard at that point, I suppose. And it's telling that his suited-up form at that point looks a bit like Odin, because that's who he is in that moment, I guess. I didn't think of that, actually. That's kind of true. Yeah, good work on Thor. Well done, guys. I'll give you ten points. Ten, ten points, points add up to... We don't uh, know. Crazy. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about Nebula in there as well. Aaron, you touched on Nebula, and actually on my rewatch, I was kind of caught by how well Karen Gillan did in playing two versions of Nebula, and actually the fact that there has been a bit of character development there, because I, I hadn't written off the character. That's not fair to say. But I didn't think there was that much there with her. And then in this, you get to see a bit of development, the way she's interacting with Tony when they're stuck together, the way she interacts with Rocket, the way she interacts with everyone else when they're they're having sort of conference and things. Makes me sort of appreciate that there has been development in that character from the first Guardians film. And the fact that Karen Gillan was able to sort of portray the two of them and portray that development. I thought was neat through this. What did you think, Craig? I like Nebula in this film. I also liked her in Guardians 2, which is where she gets the most of her development, mm. I think, where her and Gamora become sisters, as is referenced in this particular film, and that's what spurs Gamora to betray Thanos, which she's already thinking about, because, remember, this is just before the first Guardians film starts. In fact, it's at the point the first Guardians film starts. So she's already 
thinking about betraying Thanos anyway, so she just needs that push. So that's where that comes from. The way she interacts with Tony is pretty good. You don't really see that much of it beyond that one scene early on. I really liked the, the relationship she had with Rhodey, even though it was quite short, because they had this moment where it's like, yeah, I use machines to like enhance myself. You're machine enhanced. We work with what we've got. That Just a nice little connection that they just forged there. And I think she's used really well throughout. And I think Karen Gillan has come on leaps and bounds as an actor since her days on Doctor Who. And these films are a big testament to just how good she is. And I can't wait to see more of what they do with her in the future films and the next Guardians film and wherever she might end up. She was definitely an interesting character to see. She got a bit of comedy at the start and then throughout she develops this thing that I think they've previously assigned to the early portrayal of the Hulk, this resigned tristesse, they called it, when Banner was shown. She's seen the tragedy of things and has found a way to accept it and move on anyway. So she's very well delivered and enjoyed every part of it. Black Widow, we should talk about. We've already sort of talked a little bit about how Nat handled the post-snap world becomes sort of a version of Nick Fury, I suppose. She sort of takes that mantle a little bit of coordinating everyone together with fewer secret bases and fewer Avengers than Nick had available and then ultimately sacrifices herself for the Soul Stone at the end. What did we think about that? Was it always Nat that had to go? Well, apparently the writers didn't think so. They get flipping on which one they were going to kill. So, well, it had to be one of them and you knew that going in because they have to go get the Soul Stone. And if they introduce some random loophole now, that's just going to cheapen it completely. You know, oh, Gamora didn't need to die because all you had to do was throw the Red Skull down the pit. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> oh, that was an option? <laughs> yeah. Oh, Red if Skull, only, I love you. Shove. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, or, I don't know, just throw something that you love down there. You love your iPhone, away it goes. Uh, <laughs> no. You get the Soul Stone. So... Yeah, it was one or the other. And you knew that going in. And I like the line that Nebula has where the Milano flies off, or whatever the ship's called. I think it's still the Milano. It flies off anyway, and coordinates are keyed in for Vormir. All they have to do is not fall out. So Nebula knows what's going on. And it was something we discussed in the last one, actually. There's possibly a better version of her death where Nebula has spent all this time, she's known the Avengers, thinking about if we had to go get the Infinity Stones, here's how we would do it. And she's identified who the best friends on the team are. And Hawkeye and Nat are obviously best pals. We've known that for quite a while. So they're a main candidate for one of them can die through a sacrifice that gives the other the Soul Stone. So a better version of that would be where a conversation would have happened ahead of time. And Nat was ready for it because she knew about it. And I suppose it could be I've actually taken poison or something like that. You know, I'm going to die soon anyway. I think them fighting to see who gets to die is a bit on the nose. I think it could have been done a different way. But I also think the actual moment where she lets go is very powerful. No, definitely. There probably was a debate in there. And you get the hint that they've been talking about it for a very, very long time. When they do the wide shot and it's Hawkeye looking over towards Red Skull going, yep. <laughs> Still here, kind of. There's a going who gives him a yeah. wave goes back to the chat. Yeah. Yep. Let's keep going with this debate. So I suppose the only way that's going to end is a, a fight for one to try and save the other. I don't know because the thing is, like, you look at the other options of who could have went there and would it have had the same impact? Well, there's Nat and Banner. Nat and Banner is a shout, but you need Banner to click the glove later on. Though I suppose you could give it to Four to do. 
Well, it would still be Nat that dies in that scenario. You don't think Banner would jump off? No. Or if he did, he'd be like, oh, look, I survived. Oops. I'm the Hulk. <laughs> no, I think you could have still had that scene or a version of that scene with, with Nat and Banner where Nat dies and then Banner goes back because him and Hawkeye, they're the most visibly distraught. Everyone else is like upset, but they're the two that are clearly mm. most affected. And you'd never get any real closure on the Nat and Banner relationship either. So that would have been an opportunity for that. And then you could have had like Tony Stark talk to the Ancient One or anyone else, really. I mean, you don't need Banner in that scene. That's true. But that's the only other pairing I can think of that would have actually worked for me. Mm. Steve and Tony, I guess. I mean, that would have been, nah, too early. Yeah, Rocket and Nebula wouldn't have been enough. No, I think you're right. There's not many in there. Oh, Rudy and Tony. None of these have the requirement that it's the thing Mm. you love the most. So none of them actually work. They're things that you like a lot, but none of them have the requirement that they're the thing you love the most. Yeah, sort of out of the characters that weren't snapped. Yeah, you're kind of... That's your lot, isn't it? There's no other pairing, and arguably I don't think there's any other choice on how it goes. I think it has to be Nat that goes over. It's her ending, because she talks throughout the film about what her life has become and what it was and the two of them coming together is a bit of a plot device because there isn't anybody else that can fulfill that role of the two of them being together and I think you have to accept the plot device personally because the fact that it's a surprise makes it more powerful if only because of what Doctor Strange says throughout. If I tell you what's going to happen, it's not going to work. The biggest decisions are made in the moment, and you can't plan for it, you can't get out of it, you can't think of some way clever, you just have to make the awful choice. And if they did something whereby, yeah, I've taken poison, mate, so I'm going over, I honestly believe that would have ruined the emotion of the moment. Because it's a surprise, because nobody can try and think of anything clever, all that's left is the gut reaction choice. One of us has to go over. Oh, and by the way, we've just had the universe confirm that we are the most precious thing to each other in some way. That's a bit brutal, isn't it? As you just learn that actually given to you, now you have to, again, throw somebody over. If all of this is given to you in exposition, or even well-delivered in a story earlier on, it doesn't have that heart punch that comes with realization immediately into decision. No choice. No working it out. You've just got to do it. So it, it's a plot device to get them there, but it has to be the two of them. And then it has to be her because it's her finish. Hawkeye's finish is the fact that arguably he's really suffered throughout these films and he hasn't had the development of other people and, and they've not used him in some of the films because they haven't had anything to really deliver. But he gets it here in that it's his family. He's always been a soldier. And the payoff for that is that he realizes what's most important to him is actually his family. It's taken away from him with a snap but then he earns it back at the end. And it's also payoff because he's the only one, so we're told, was able to forgive Nat for her earlier transgressions as a killing machine. He's the only one that saw something better in her, and he's the only one that was prepared to actually go out on a limb and give her the chance to prove it. And so when it comes to it, her finish is she gets to really prove it 
She has arguably already proven it. She's become a better person. She's become a hero that saves the world. When everything goes to pot, she takes over Nick Fury's role and she earns her salt as a soldier and as a commander. And you could say, yeah, you've taken on the right job. That is you showing that you can do this. But emotional endings to stories need to be more powerful than that logistical success of becoming commander. It needs to be, I will show the universe that I have become a better person here. And what better way to do that than with the ultimate ending? So she has to go over. It is the finality of her story. It does prove that she has become a better person. And of course, it leads to the saving of the day, which the original Black Widow would never have done because she was a killer. Now she's a savior. And the smaller development is, of course, that Hawkeye gets to go back to receive his reward of family. So it's kind of tricky how they get them there. But if you say, like I have already had to do so with the time travel plot, does it really bother me that they just had to get there? Nope. The payoff is so huge, then I don't really mind that it was a bit of a cosmic accident that it got them to the Red Skull. It was totally worth it. So what are your views on the lack of funeral? Because that's been a big talking point since the film came out. She doesn't really get a funeral. They have a quick chat by the lake and where they, they're kind of upset. You know, Tony Stark gets a huge funeral attended by everyone that the universe can muster, including that kid from Iron Man 3 that everyone forgot about. <laughs> and she doesn't. And my view is it wouldn't be appropriate to have a big scale funeral for Black Widow because that's not the sort of person she is. Although I do think they could have done it better than they. There's a YouTube video that I'll link in the show notes that talks about it in a really interesting way where it brings in something they did in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. There's an episode where... And so in that show, you had the Mockingbird and Lance Hunter characters who were going to go off and do their own spin-off show that didn't get picked up. But by the time it didn't get picked up, they'd already written them out of the show and couldn't bring them back. So that's unfortunate. But their ending is really good because they get disavowed by the government. So they have to say goodbye, but they can't interact with them because if they're seen interacting with them, that opens up a can of worms. So what they all do is they sit around in a bar and they all send a drink to their table and they do a toast. You know, it's a quiet toast and it's a really emotional, really powerful moment. And it's called A Spy's Goodbye, which would be perfectly appropriate for... I can't take credit for coming up with that idea because that YouTube video. I believe it was Nando V Movies. It might have been Captain Midnight. Mm. One of the two. I'll link a video for the other one just to be safe. But that would have been a much more interesting moment for Nat, I think, if it went with something like that. So I totally disagree with that. No, I don't totally disagree with you. That's nonsense at all. I agree with the first thing you said, but not with everything that came after it, which was that she did get the send-off that you describe in a different way. And when you said something that reflected who they were they were uh, oh i said they i meant let's explain that pronoun it's hawkeye and scarlet witch both have a funeral for their partners both of which have died in war conditions so you couldn't have a funeral at the time they have a private funeral for the two characters together by discussing them and that's fitting because both characters although had great impact on the world really interacted strongly with very few people. So an individual funeral is fitting for people who were quite individual in their relationships. They're quite singular in their relationships. I know there's Anna and Nat. I never really got into that myself. So 
the idea that it was almost an individual funeral for individuals who connected so singularly really suited for me. It was quite fitting, it was emotional, and it was the two of them discussing the very essence of what is a funeral, what is death to human beings. It is the people left behind, and those two are the people left behind, talking about what they wanted for their friends, lovers, partners, and what those people meant for the world, and specifically those two. And I would have hated a spy's funeral because it would have meant that Black Widow was a spy. And I think it fitted probably very well for the character you were discussing because their particular character arc would have been the spy, the development of that person throughout their career as a spy, where they started, where they ended. Whereas Black Widow, her story in this was that she was somebody who was lost and didn't really have an existence beyond being a killer, couldn't impact on a human in an emotional way because she could only impact on them with a weapon. And then her end is somebody who could impact only emotionally because it comes to that point, as you say, where it's not hitting each other with swords or weapons that is her final death. Her final death is somebody pleading for her not to die and she just pushes herself off anyway. So the weapons are all completely removed. It's emotional. It has that impact of the heart rather than the physicality. And I think I don't want to see a spy's funeral because it would detract from that emotional end point. And I can't quite remember how Vision goes, but he is pretty much trying to sacrifice himself to save other people at the same thing. So they have that same point where it's an emotional end, where it's who they are that matters. And that is then celebrated by two people talking about who they are on the banks of the water. So I disagree. There was a funeral. It was a meaningful funeral. It was a correct representative funeral. And it was definitely what I wanted to see for those two characters. I think Vision and Black Widow, they got the send off that I thought was respectful and necessary. Do you think Fury should have been in that conversation? No, definitely not. Because it was Scarlet Witch with a bond with Vision and it was Hawkeye who had a bond with Black Widow. Those were the strong bonds. Fury did not have that bond with any of those characters. He, he should not have been there. That would have been disrespectful to that thing that I've described. Not disrespectful to Nat. Of course, somebody should have been there to her funeral, but disrespectful to the message that was being given. It would have detracted, I think. Although Fury had a strong bond with her as well. No, but it's a totally different bond. It's not the bond whereby you are prepared to throw yourself off the edge of the spiritual cliff to retrieve the soul stone. Fury did not have that bond with Black Widow at all. He might have had father-daughter relationship, he might have had a best friend relationship, but it was not the, hey, you're the person who recognized that I am a human with a mortal soul after all and gave me a chance to become that. That was Hawkeye's alone. Both put good arguments either side, to be honest. I think there could have been a different way of doing it, but I understand why at that point of the film, and also plot-wise, I can understand why at that point of the film, they've just got the stones back. They don't know how long they're going to have to get everything fixed and back ready. So it's kind of one of those time-is-of-the-essence moments. I do think they could have handled it a bit better. I do think they could have made a bit of a bigger deal 
about it, but it does feel like it slightly washed over at the time. I don't know if they could have done a bit of service towards the end of the film, where they show a memorial or they show a something. Because the thing is that not only did you make the sacrifice in there, but all the lives that she saved up to that point, plus the fact that she stood those five years and presumably made a big impact in those five years of keeping everything on track. You presume that people would have known that she had done that. It wasn't just happening in the shadows with people not knowing. So you kind of feel that there should have been a bigger deal made at that point. But because of the length of the film and a bit like we said earlier on about what do you cut, what do you keep and how many films do you end up having to make instead of just this one film if we include everything that we want. I I get why it might have not been given the same amount of time that it maybe deserved. We're not aware of what the point of our solo film is either. The good news post-Endgame is that the character is actually getting a solo film. She's finally getting her own film. So for the character and for us it's not bye-bye to the character entirely. But I still think that, yeah, does she deserve a big send-off or a big-air send-off? Probably. But the film wasn't able to do it. I mean, trying to fit in logistically in the film as well, two funerals, and also to explain in the plot that they got the stones, they put the stones, locked them away in you know, the Avengers building, and they waited. I, I don't think they do... You know, they give the pause in there and you presume there is a little bit of time while they work out what they're going to do with the Iron Man version of the gauntlet. But I get why they had to move on at that point. The whole thing about Black Widow was working out the red on her ledger, as she said in the previous films. So I think at that point she served her time, she's worked it out, she's got herself back on the narrow and now Hawkeye's in that debt. So he's got to go on and he's got to sort out what he's done. And hopefully we get to see some of that in the Hawkeye TV show. You might get yeah. even more of it through that. You know, I, I keep forgetting that there's these other, these other things that are expanding on it. So. so we've talked about one funeral in the film. Are we wanting to go for the big one? Tony Stark? Has to come sometime. Eventually we've got to talk about it and not tear up at the time. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the film where Tony Stark makes his final noble sacrifice and leaves a gaping hole in the MCU, I think. I don't think it's a role that's going to be easily filled in there, and I don't think they'll be able to find another Robert Downey Jr. anytime soon. No, and they probably shouldn't try. That's because, good point. Yeah, emulation is a bad thing in these cases. It's like, this is just like before, but rubbish, so don't do that. Let's build on the strong stuff you already have. I think Stark's sacrifice in this film was great, and it's the end point that the character has always kind of had. So he starts off his redemption arc in Iron Man 1, he stumbles along the way in Iron Man 2, Iron Man 3 is a mess I'd rather forget, but in the Avengers films as well, so in the first Avengers film, Cap calls him out on how selfish he is, he says, you're not the guy to make the sacrifice play. He is. Now Mm. he is, anyway. Age of Ultron, he's a bit too obsessed with defence, and that ends up being pretty terrible. Civil War, he's obsessed with defence, but in a different way. And then once Thanos turns up, it turns out everything he's put in place has been worthless anyway, because he curb stomps the entire Avengers across the galaxy, really. Nothing he put in place actually works, actually stops anything. And then by this film, he suddenly realises that he's the one that has to sacrifice. You know, he has that moment strange where it's the, if I tell you what happens, it won't happen. But then Strange gives him the little gesture that says, no, no, this is it. This is your moment, which 
I don't think is necessary because he knows it's his moment anyway at that point. And do you really need Strange to confirm that? I don't think so. Because he's going to do it. I think it's just that one final, I know what you're thinking, and yes, you could do that. <laughs> There's a joke where it's like, hold on a minute, I'm just going to tell you how to solve the whole thing. <laughs> wait, 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 yeah. wait. <laughs> just let me fight back this river, and then I'll be in touch. Just <laughs> hold on the, for just one. <laughs> yeah. And obviously you have the whole fatherhood thing, which is really well done. It calls back to Iron Man 3, where he has a great relationship with his daughter, where he just makes fun of her. You know, the go to bed or I'll sell all your toys. It's a great line. And it's this is Tony Stark as a father. It works. And it doesn't diminish his character in any way. Because once he gets back into Avengers mode, it's fine. And it's not really impacted. But everything he does is for his daughter. And his condition for helping is, I want you to bring everyone back. Fine. Bring everyone back as is. But also, I want to keep what I've got. So it's a bit of a selfish decision for sure. But... You can see why it's a selfish decision. You know, you see why he wants that. Yeah, it's that whole point of keep what we've gained in the five years. Yeah. Which sort of explains the just put everyone back exactly where they were five years ago, reset the clock, go back, because there have been some things gained in that time. There has been some development gained in that time. I'd be really surprised if Love You 3000 isn't on a set of love hearts by now. You yeah. know, the little love heart suite, surely it's, it's in there now. <laughs> on that <laughs> instead of like you complete me and all that sort of stuff yeah love you 3000 should be there and actually i think the moment he has with his dad is so that's the final bit of closure that he needs on kind of everything that he's been thinking about across his life he's had this strained relationship with his dad and then he gets to stand face to face with him both as adults both with what they've learned all right his dad's not a parent yet at the point that they interact but you're on a similar wavelength you know they've both transitioned into adulthood the last time tony saw his dad he was a teenager and clearly he misses that relationship and sort of resents him or did resent him at one point but when he's faced with him i like the little line where he says you know he was tough on me but i just remember the good stuff and that's that's just such a human reaction to that you know any strained relationship that you might have had once that disappears completely you will just remember the good stuff you know that resentment will strip away and it even ties in with that thing he says to Steve at an earlier point in the film where he says, turns out resentment's corrosive and I hate it. Mm. So it's very Tony Stark to just kind of push it aside because he just he doesn't have time for it in his life, especially at this point in his life. And that's what the interaction with his dad's all about. He gets to have that moment with him, you know, get that closure in that relationship. And that's almost like, I can die happy now or resolved everything that I'm going to resolve. Because obviously there's always something. That moment that you've just described is one of the best moments in it. I think it's also in that sense of endings, it's acceptance, it's realisations and potentially even forgiveness. So it's the resolution of the father plot. And if anybody gets a proper send-off here, it is actually definitely Tony Stark. Clearly with the funeral in a literal sense, but I mean actually in terms of plot points, because he gets that one with his dad, it's great. It's also not ruined by nonsense plot points whereby they have mistaken identity or people get caught in some sort of Benny Hill moment where they're running around trying not to see each other too much. You know, they do it a little bit because they're kind of found out, but it's over quickly and neither him nor Cap are in danger of being found out. Anything where that would have come in, I think, would have ruined the emotion of that moment. I'm glad they avoided it. But you get all the other ones. You get him and... The kid, as he describes, Peter Parker, 
it's the point where you realize how good an actor you've got in front of you, I think, when you can read emotions on faces, where they say they act with pure action, not with words. Because the look on Robert Downey Jr.'s face when he sees Peter Parker is back from ashes is heartbreaking. He's just so happy to see that this kid that he thought he'd failed, he's now been a part of bringing him back. And everything is going to be okay. If he can do that, he can do anything. And he gets, I mean, everything is resolved, but I suppose the key one is the, and you can rest now. Because he's always had that trouble. He's always been desperately trying to find a way of saving everybody right from the start. He had that movement away from selfishness at the very first film he was in. And he gets to start the whole series. And then here he gets to end the whole series. It's almost a perfect plot arc for him. Because everything that is throughout that is he's trying to become more and more selfless throughout the films. He struggles with it. He's so human and he doesn't know how he can possibly save the world. But he feels the burden that he has to do it. Because he's got the money. He's been challenged by Cap that he's not selfless enough. He's got the intelligence. He, he feels like he should be able to do it. And yet there's this constant failure and recovery, which is everything that is someone's life when you are the sort of person who does as well as he is. Only somebody who is capable of turning failure into success can become a businessman, can become an inventor, can become somebody who can save the world. And so he recovers from... Sokovia records from Ultron. He's desperately trying to fight his way through these because they keep seeming to slap him in the face every time he comes up with a good idea and nobody will agree with him and he can't find the way. And then that desperation that you see in Robert Downey Jr. as he is just railing at them all as he's rescued and he's desperately glad to see Pepper Potts is still alive but all he can do is confess that he lost the kid. All he can do is rail that everything he ever tried to do was swatted aside like a fly by Thanos. And it's all pointless. And how dare it be so pointless? He can't believe it could be. And then it transfers again and again and again until he gets that final moment. And I know what you mean when you said it was a bit on the nose that he looks at Strange at that last point, who's literally holding up the one finger to say this is your one in a billion chance, whatever it is. But... Because it's just a look, I've completely accepted it. If either of them had said anything, if either of them had have made a movement with their mouth into a smile or a frown, if they'd have given any form of indication that something was being communicated with them, I wouldn't have been able to accept it, but they don't. They just look at each other and they both know. And it's that acting without doing it. I mean, the idea that you can actually as a director, as a writer, as two actors, convey so much meaning by two people literally standing still and doing absolutely nothing <laughs> shows the power of that moment. So I was totally in on that moment because it was a nothing that gave everything. And from that seed of nothingness comes Tony's final action that saves everybody and of course resolves his plot line where as we discussed he goes from total selfishness to total selflessness 
and it's a stunning moment. That whole point is more impressive to me than the action, even though I quite like the action scenes. It's just quite overwhelming. I will say that there were some tears shed throughout Endgame, and Tony's final end point was one for me. But yeah, he's my favourite character. All those very well-delivered points. And it's even just the little human moments in the back end of his death. You've got the bit where Happy's talking to Morgan and asking what she wants, and she says, cheeseburgers, and it's that reference to the first Iron Man film. The first thing he wanted when he got back from Afghanistan yes. after escaping the cave was a cheeseburger. And it's that, wow, that, that's brutal. You know, that's it's just, yeah, you can't get any more human than that. Especially when you think about he's a billionaire and, you know, all the things he's achieved. And it's like, what does his daughter want? She doesn't understand what's going on. It's just something really simple. And it'll be something really simple that reminds her of him as well. You yeah. can imagine that they've had cheeseburgers together and it's been a cute moment that they've shared. And when you talk about the inability to rest, it's when they come to him with the whole quantum realm plan. And the first thing he does is say, nope, go away. I know you want to think about this. I'm happy with my life. And then that very night, you imagine, he's working on the problem because he just can't mm. push it aside. That's not is. who he is. Yeah. And even Pepper gives him that permission to go away and do this because you need to do it. You'll never rest otherwise. And that's the callback. That's the, you can rest now. Yeah. Mm. He even says you should just throw this to the bottom of the lake. You wouldn't go yeah. to see this through now. You've solved it. They piqued his curiosity. He figured it out. And yeah. Yeah. And that's when he comes across that picture of him and Peter as well, mm. where they're both doing bunny ears, which is, you know, hilarious. <laughs> but he comes across that picture of Peter and it's he's been forgetting about him, I guess, or trying to forget about him in those five years. And, and he just can't. I mean, there's a picture of him on his kitchen shelf. Yeah, you can't forget it. It's one of those where Tony, and they do say it in the film, he's been luckier post the snap than a lot of others have because he didn't lose Pepper, he's gained a daughter. He's gained a sort of peace even though the world's fallen apart around him in that moment. And it's pretty much the opposite of how you'd expect Tony Stark to end up mm. in a technologically bereft lake house. Yeah, well, he's escaped from it all. He's got out of the way. Now, presumably, at that point, Pepper is still running Stark Industries, but is Tony just staying at home, staying at the cabin, fishing, playing with Morgan in the garden? I don't know. Building her armour. Building armour, yeah. Because, you know, you can't get away from that completely, I suppose. Yeah, it's it's one of those. you, You don't know how disconnected he's been, but then he gets the reminder when they visit. He gets a reminder when he sees the picture of Peter. And at that point, he realises there were people lost. Again, he remembers it again. And that's what sort of draws him in to look at it and scratch that itch and see if he can actually solve the problem. I like the closure that he gets in this. The scene where his dad had on my notes as well to mention that. I really like the way that worked, giving him a different sort of closure that you wouldn't be able to get any other way. You've seen him getting the video footage and seeing his dad sort of speaking about him in the background of the video and stuff. That's about as close as you've got up to this point where he's actually been able to speak to him and impart his own advice and speak to him as a fellow father. Not even a fellow father at that point, but actually pass on fatherly advice to his own dad. So, yeah, I really like that. I think he got a fitting end for the character and I don't know how else they could have taken him out that would have been better than that. And it's the simplicity of the fix of his rift with Cap as well. You expected that to maybe linger on for a bit longer because that's what happens in things like this. People fall out and it suddenly becomes this animosity. But 
Stark just comes up and is like, I can't be arsed holding a grudge anymore. Can we just bury it? And Cap's like, yep, no problem. Let's move on. And then they never bring it up again. And then you have that bit where it's like, you trust me? And he's like, yeah, I do. And that's it. And it's that mature approach to handling your problems. It's been five years. It's been X amount of years since the Sokovia Accords. It's not important. They were worthless anyway. They didn't help anybody. They didn't do anything. So let's just forget it. And then they're able to focus on the larger problem. And that says a lot about Tony Stark. You've never seen him hold a grudge in any of the films with anybody. And there's no reason for him to do that here. So, yeah, he gets that resolution with Cap very quickly because the film needs it to and because it makes sense for him as well. Yeah, I mean, on screen it's quick and, in you know, real time it's that five-year period. You see the... Or longer, it's like seven years, yeah. you know, that yeah, since they fell out, yeah. that kind of thing. You see, he has a bit of the emotional breakdown when he arrives and he has the speech and the and collapses back at the headquarters when he arrives back. And you see that he's still angry, still blaming Steve and himself and kind of lashing out at that point because of the sense of loss he's got. They've been defeated. They've been beaten, not for the first time, but they've been defeated. It's and the scale of point. it is, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, the plaster's well and truly been ripped off and, yeah, he's feeling all of it at that point to see it getting resolved much as they do the fast forward the five years time it's good to get that resolution in there someone that of course had absolutely nothing to do with that argument at all was Captain Marvel who gets introduced to all the Avengers in this film I was a bit surprised at how she just appears I mean don't get me wrong I'm very glad that she rescues Tony Stark but they kind of deleted any of the you better go out there and find Tony chat that I was maybe expecting it was just like a bit of assumed knowledge that she just sort of jumps into action and rescues Tony at the beginning. Do you think that was something that was cut for time? Or do you think they just never had any intention of showing it? They were just going to use the post credit stings to do it? I think cut for relevance is the most accurate way to describe it. Because would you really want to see them having a five-minute discussion about here's what's happened, you know that half the universe is gone... You know that Nick Fury is gone because we've seen it happen. We don't know where Tony Stark is. Do you need to go out and find Tony Stark? I mean, do you really need to see that conversation? You've just filled it in yourself. What you've said there is your brain just filling in that gap. So I think the, the story motors along without you needing to see that conversation. Yeah, my thing with this has been sort of including bits and post credit stings. Like if you watched Infinity War, you would have seen him use the little bleeper thing and that's about as close as you got to oh by the way we've called Captain Marvel and to help out and then you see how the pager comes into existence in Captain Marvel mm. so you can join the dots quite easily I think albeit through post credits yeah well I mean if you're watching Endgame and you haven't seen the post credit scene in Captain Marvel then you're probably not as invested in the universe as some other people are so I think they can make the assumption that the audience will just go with it. We'll do our research. We'll go in the wiki. We'll sort yeah, it or out. We'll just be fine. Whoever Spe- this is, I haven't seen Captain Marvel, says audience member, but here's I some pre- random blonde woman flying through space who I bumps presume into this Stark. is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Tony Stark can tell her, assuming the argument of she just randomly bumps into him, which is a bit of a stretch because space, not that small. Yeah, apparently it's really big. Yeah, apparently. Except in comic book universities where people just bump into each other randomly. So she gets on board whatever the ship is called 
and says to Tony, you know, hi, who, who the hell are you? Where have you been coming from? And he says, can you take me back to Earth before I suffocate? And then that's it. And they all live happily ever after. Eventually. Except Tony, who dies happily ever after. Yeah, all that rescuing just for him to die. What a waste. What an absolute waste. How about you, Aaron? How did you feel about Captain Marvel's introduction? I didn't really mind the introduction, I guess. It wasn't really the largest issue I had with Captain Marvel, so it kind of paled against those. For an introduction, I think I'm okay that things are just unsaid on screen and are said off screen. Plus the idea of finding him. I have to assume that there are such a thing as space lanes as there are sea lanes, as in the direct route from A to B is the most likely place you will find a ship, because there's no reason anybody would just head out into deep space if they were just traveling. So yeah, it doesn't really concern me too much, I guess. Plus, she is effectively of godlike power, so she detects him somehow, and I'm okay with that. So compared to the plot concerns I had with her, that turning up wasn't really much of a bother. Do you hint at plot concerns there? What were your worries with Captain Marvel? Uh, she served no purpose in this film, I think. Well, that's not true. She needs to rescue Tony and Nebula. And then once she's done that, there's no reason for her to be there in the grand scheme of things. You think that she's been introduced because they need somebody of a high power level to fight Thanos, but actually I don't believe in the plot as we've seen it. She was needed because arguably Tony doing the click at the end is what gets rid of all Thanos. So actually having her wipe out his battleship kind of made me think, well, should she not just carry on sweeping up? Because she can easily get rid of them all and and then everybody else can just focus on Thanos because she is that powerful. So it didn't really seem to have a great purpose. And she vanishes for lots of the film. Again, she's so powerful. I suppose potentially she helps them find Thanos. But again, I'm not convinced she's needed for that. The knowledge they could have cobbled together from power surges, rocket, Nebula could have done that. Getting there, she went down and scouted. But he's no threat so they can easily go and take him i mean they didn't know that so maybe they think they need her so it's not that logistically she doesn't serve any purpose but it's plot wise she doesn't serve any purpose because there's nobody there of a power level to require her to answer it so i'm i'm not quite sure what purpose she served she wasn't in infinity or was she so she's not needed for that reason So it seems a shame to have to go through all this effort to introduce a really powerful character, because we really need a really powerful character, to then not really need her. And it's powerful enough, the ending, with Tony having to sacrifice himself to get rid of all of Thanos. And he could have easily clicked the battleship out of existence as well. She didn't need to solve that to allow him to do his bit, or it didn't seem so. Maybe I misread the strategy of that situation, but at the very least I'm going to say she was underused for what she could or might have done. Well, she doesn't even do anything to help them find him. The rocket that delivers that information, Hmm. because they ask her do you know where he is? And she says, I know people who might. Well, And so she's going to go on a bit of a Thanos hunt, but she has no idea where he is. It's until, I guess, Nebula's there to give Rocket mm. an idea of where to look. Yeah. 
and then Rocket looks and it's like, oh, by the way, two days ago uh, we detected the same energy that was used 22 days ago when the first snap happened, so he's probably there. And that's all you need. I agree that she's underused. I mean, if you think back to the Captain Marvel podcast, I had my issues with her just being too powerful in that film. And in this film, it's the same kind of problem. That's why she disappears for so much of it. Plus, it's a swan song for the original Avengers, so she wouldn't have fit into that time heist plot. I don't think there was a place for her there. And if you think about it, the Russos probably are only tangentially aware of Captain Marvel because it's getting made at the same time. So what do we know about Captain Marvel? Well, she can fly through spaceships. So that's what she'll do here. And that's her only purpose in the end battle, really, is she flies through Thanos' ship because it's pounding the surface at that point. And because she's the only one powerful enough to do that. Plus, it's get everybody in, all hands on deck, why not? It's the final battle. It does get it. I agree with you, and I think I said the same in the Captain Marvel podcast. I do think the power levels with her are just off the scale, which is great in one way because it means that villains that she goes up against don't need to be more powerful or more fought through or more clever because they're not going to be able to outpower her they're going to need to outsmart her but at the same time in a film like this you go well why would you need anyone else she can fly through a ship and just destroy it like Aaron said given enough time she would have wiped her way through that battlefield I think at that point they were carpet bombing everyone that had come through using the ship so the ship needed to be taken out of play quicker than Tony being able to do the snap to take Thanos' army away because arguably they wouldn't have been able to get the gauntlet across the field without the ship being destroyed because it would have just taken out everyone that was down there, especially the powered of the heroes, the more human and fallible and <laughs> mushy humans that could be wiped out more easily with alien weapon fire. Well, at that um, point, Spidey had the gauntlet and he was like mm-hmm. cowering in fear because they were carpet bombing near his location. Yeah, they were just taking everyone out. Because the thing is, they weren't showing any discrimination whatsoever. They were taking out their own troops as well. So it wasn't like they were trying to be strategic in any way. They were just flattening everything that was in that field. You know, I guess it's just difficult to appreciate the strategy of the moment because if the carpet bombing is hitting both sides, then you're thinking that. In that case, it's everybody just hide and then it will be all the good guys versus Thanos because there's no army anymore. Except that then at the end, Tony clicks away the army. So that clearly is a problem. So I think you're right. I think she is there to stop carpet bombing and and she destroys the battleship. But if you have to write that scenario in, then again, I felt like I was stuck at well, why didn't she just wipe out the army as well then if that was the problem? So it's one where I was invited to question it, I think, and I didn't want to question it because I didn't like any of the answers I was given. Whereas lots of the other things we've talked about so far, if I analyse them too much, I still didn't necessarily end up in a place I liked. But I wasn't really asked to do that during the film. I could switch off the emotion of it carried me in a way that in that scene, her suddenly turning up. I guess I didn't feel this joy of, oh, thank God they've been saved. I didn't feel that. I actually thought, no, get out the way. They're all doing really well. Don't ruin it by coming in and being a deus ex machina. And therefore the emotion was removed. Equally, somebody could turn around and say to me that they did feel that, that they did think the day was lost and she did save it. And I'd have to believe them. So... It could just be a personal misinterpretation. I think they're very limited in their usage of Captain Marvel in this film because, as I said, Mm. they were making that film at the same time they were making this film. So Brie Larson's time would have been pretty tight. So she would only have the time to film a few bits and pieces for Endgame. 
because of just the, the logistics of it. You know, that's why there's not very much Black Panther in Infinity War. Mm. Because, again, they're making that film at the same time. I think they were trying to give the writers of the other film freedom to create the character as well, because if they had done everything in this one, despite the fact it was coming after, then they would have been sort of tying them into things that they didn't want to do. So, Well, I mean, they, in terms of physicality, they rocket her through some of her development, as in she gets her comic-accurate, at least current comic-accurate haircut in this film, which you would think might be saved for a Captain Marvel sequel. But other than that, there's really very little. There's a moment she shares with Rhodey that suggests that they've become friends over the past five years. You know, she says good luck just before she fades off. That suggests that they've been talking in the interim time. But other than that, you get no real sense of where she fits into that group dynamic that the Avengers have. Other than some of them are quite impressed by her. Mm. One scene of hers that I, I quite liked was the fight scene between her and Thanos. I thought was quite well done, to the point where he sort of grabs the power stone out the gauntlet to try and beat her up, because he was losing at that point. I thought that was kind of an interesting sort of tactic switch. That almost serves to highlight how overpowered she is as well, mm. because Thanos is no real threat to her. He's at full strength at that point. The power stone, alright, she can be at least knocked back by the power stone, but it doesn't even slow her down for that long. Mm. So basically all you have to do is once you destroy the spaceship, you say, Captain Marvel, Scarlet Witch, attack Thanos. Job done. Yeah. Yeah, like combination of the two. Because I'm trying to think of what stone did he have when he took on the Hulk. Was that the power stone that he had? That was just his regular power. He wasn't using the power stone at the time. Well, there you go. So Thanos is strong enough to just take the Hulk in a physical fight on his own without any stones. It's a difficult one to accept, but actually if you start analysing this, you start to question the power levels then, because you don't really get the impression of that when he's tackling Iron Man. But maybe I should have done the battle between the Avengers that they've put on. They made it pretty clear that the only person that can stand toe-to-toe with Hulk is Thor. And yet, actually, all the others were quite happy against Thanos. I guess maybe because he's brute strength, he doesn't have rays to shoot at people, so they only have to be able to dodge his attacks. But I'm starting to wonder about all the power levels. It's a real problem I have with the DC TV shows. They change the power level of the character to suit the circumstance they're in. I find it really annoying, and I've never questioned that with Marvel before, but now you're making me do it. (laughs) I had a bit of that. The thing is, all that we're talking about in this podcast is like hindsight viewing. So it's not like your initial one or two times seeing the film where you're just absorbed in it. It's the the things that you start picking up on after. Well, hang on. If they can take on that person and that person, but not that person, then where does that place them in world rankings sort of thing? Mm. Well, they haven't established how much heat Tony's packing inside his current version of his armour. You would have to imagine it's got to be significant. So he's the one that makes Thanos bleed in Infinity War, after all. That's a war of attrition. You know, he loses a lot of his suit at that point. But a lot of his attacks on Thanos are at a distance, which is Tony's style anyway. He doesn't like to get in close if he can help it, which makes sense. You know, he'll get demolished. And there's a bit where Cat holds him back for a few seconds. But apparently the writer said that the meaning of that is Thanos is just really surprised that someone as weak as him would try and do that. So he's kind of hesitates for a few seconds before, you know, just clocking him in the face and then he's not a problem anymore. So I think they're relatively consistent with the power levels. You never see the Hulk fight him again. Plus any point where you have to have the Roy explain it afterwards, I think, is a difficulty. Mm-hmm. Well, if you watch the moment, there's an expression on Thanos' face that's kind of a little bit of surprise. Yeah, but I can't interpret that. My interpretation of that surprise is, 
oh my God, he's so strong, he can do this to me. Because if somebody as intelligent and capable as Thanos, who can in a moment pull out the power stone and knock back the supreme power that is Captain Marvel, then why is he so taken aback by somebody who is just a soldier fighting like a soldier? It's a convenience. It doesn't make sense. Somebody like that should be able to assess the threat level in a blink of an eye and say, this is of no problem to me. I'm not surprised by this. I'm just going to defeat it. If the writers have to make that explanation and interpret the surprise into the particular type of surprise it is, then yeah, I think there's a problem there. I'm just trying to think of other Avengers that Thanos fights in this film. I mean, that's really it. He didn't fight anybody else. Yeah, you've seen him do little bits in the previous film, but in the previous film he had the stones, so it was a slightly different loadout. For I suppose he fights all the female Avengers at once. You know, they're all kind of pelting them with their whatever attacks are, and, and they throw them back. They sort of mm. stall them for a few seconds. Which again, that scene connected to Captain Marvel. I'm not really buying it. It's the bit where Peter says, "How are you going to get through all that?" Which, fair enough, he doesn't know how powerful she is. Although he has just seen her fly through a spaceship. So he must have some idea. And then, you know, Akoi says, don't worry, she's got help. And, or Wanda and Akoi say, don't worry, mm. she's got help. But she doesn't need them. She can just plow through, surely. <laughs> or fly cute. over. I don't know. Anything. It's a nice moment. And it's a bit of sort of, look how many female heroes we have and female supporting characters we have in these or films. Or as the reaction has stated... Look how little work we've done on our female characters yeah, at this point. Exactly. <laughs> That's kind of why it was there, wasn't it? There's no other logistical reason because they've all been scattered across the battlefield. They've not all wandered over at that moment. Yeah, it wasn't exactly the best for them to do, but fair enough. They, it they would have made it. more sense had they been needed, I think. But yeah. When Captain Marvel just flown through Thanos' ship, then. You know that they're not needed. Yeah, last person that needs help at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> when you see that. Now, we're talking about Thanos there. How do we feel he was handled in this film? We're getting to see a more raw, not had as many life lessons yet, Thanos. So, what did we think of that? So, I said in the last podcast that Thanos is a bit more of an MCU villain in this film. Which is to say that it doesn't feel as roundly developed as he does in the previous film. Which makes sense, because the previous film says film, and this is kind of a earlier oppositional version of him. I think what they do with him is quite good. The way they kind of play up his intelligence works, where he's able to piece together what's actually happening through the other Nebula's memories, and how he's able to bring about his own plan. And then once he bombs the Avengers compound, and then they fight him, he's just another villain. He's just another big brutish villain. Apart from a couple of speeches where... Some of the stuff he says is kind of interesting. I like the bit where he talks about shredding the universe down to its last atom and then rebuilding it with nobody having any memory of what he's done and he's creating this kind of perfect universe. And in some ways, that's not a terrible idea, maybe. A grateful universe that's built from the ground up. I mean, I don't know what his vision of it would have been, but it would have been so funny if Thor or someone had been like, actually, that's a great idea. Let's try that. It's... One of those things that sounds good if you're surely, I don't even know what the right word is, but that sounds ultra-fascist or something, doesn't it? Let's just remove everybody's free will and create a grateful, supplicant population. I mean, it sounds like it's removing everything that all of the heroes have been fighting for through this whole 20-odd film set, isn't it? 
surely none of them can possibly align themselves to that. Yeah, that's why it needs to be stopped. But it does sound less grisly than just wiping out half the life in the universe while having the other half remember that the other half existed. Does it make you wonder why he didn't think of that in the first place, going, God, everyone else is going to be really annoyed when I do this. <laughs> but I suppose at that point he doesn't know that time travel's possible and people will try and undo what he did. If you remember back in Infinity War, his assumption was that they would eventually come around to the idea because his experience has been he's wiped out half the life on various planets and in those cases the other half of the population managed to thrive under the circumstances. Hmm. We'll Plus all turn around and be like Cap and go, oh, look at the pod of whales. Happy now. Yeah. He did get rid of the stones as well after completing his plan. He did get rid of what he thought was the only way of changing everything. So that whole life goes on thing was, in his mind, the only solution that was available to the rest of the multiverse. And he's also willing to pay the price as well. As in, he's a broken shell of his former self when you first meet the Infinity War version of him at the start of this film. He seems half dead at that point. And it's not that his plan is selfless, but at the same time he doesn't absolve himself from the consequences of it because he knows that he'll have to lose things and he won't be the man he was after he carries out his plan. But it's almost like, I can live with that because I think that what I'm doing is right. And that's what made him such a good villain before because he doesn't see himself as one. Which, that's all the best villains. I mean, we talked about that in Legion and everything else, you know, the... The best villains are the ones that don't think they're villains. I think he develops well enough in this film for what he needs to be. His film was Infinity War, so he doesn't need to do anything but be the villain in this one. But despite that, we still see two parts of him where he is the victor and then the return to this struggling Thanos, the strategist who's having to find a way to make it occur. We, We really only need him to be a retired general for the first part, which he does really well, and then an active, striving general in the second part. So you get a bit of a mix, and he is clearly showing off his intelligence. I mean, Craig, if you said that, but then he's also got his ability to think around the problems of the day, survive in physical combat, do army combat. So I think he provides uh, the obstacle that's required for the plot. I wouldn't want it to have seen too much more of an emotional plot from him in this film, I don't think, just because there was so much that needed to come out of the Avengers themselves. And they had to have a bit of a back foot to give Thanos his development in Infinity War. It feels like, not in terms of fairness, but in terms of just the balance of the time that was allowed, he needed to take a step back now to be the villain in order to give us time with all the other characters, even if, because there's so many of them. Can anyone else not believe that no one thought to change Nebula's IP address before sending her back to a point where Thanos <laughs> was kicking about? I mean, if we did have a sponsor, this would be the point where we'd bring in the VPN sponsor that we have. <laughs> it's like, if they'd installed a VPN on... Nebula, then we wouldn't be in this mess. And why did it work one way and not the other? I so guess why, there's nothing why, worth watching in the other Nebula. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, you know, she didn't get much of a warning. And then well, she got, she already has those memories. And she got her mobility back. But I didn't get when uh, Nebula, she got her mobility back. She was able to run to the ship to go to the radio and try and warn people. 
but she didn't just hit the watch and disappear. Yeah. Because it's like, they stop her hitting the thing and disappearing, but there's no reason that she couldn't have disappeared when she got her motor back. Yeah, other than she needed to be captured so that... that Yeah, other than plot reasons. (laughs) She needs to do something silly at this point for the plot. I guess at that point they're just banking on the oh crap part of it uh, Mm. resonating enough for you to just go with it. I mean, why is the pod there in the first place? They don't need it. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose it's for if they needed to meet up for some reason or... You can uh, tell why they need the ship, but they don't need the pod. Mm. Again, nitpick. Nitpick, yeah. yeah. At that point, I was like, why? Because at first I thought they stopped her being able to move so she wasn't able to escape. And then they did the, oh no, actually she can move about, it's absolutely fine. I'm like, well, at that point you just hit the button and you vanish. You're not going to be caught. Yeah. Does she need to return all the objects because if she didn't return them there would be some sort of alternate reality created i mean i'm digging a bit but there's already an alternate reality because they've already taken the power stone Mm. yeah they've knocked quill out and he didn't get the power stone so they've already created their oh no but they solved that by immediately giving it back to him so he doesn't notice in theory yeah so there's nothing else that needs returned really she's about to just go back at that moment anyway until she just spasms because of them accessing her brain. Mm. She's about to press a button. It's just the instant before she does it. She's affected. I'm only playing devil's advocate. I can't think of a good reason. As you say, the plot force took over. Although how funny is it when you see a recreation of the iconic opening from oh. of the Galaxy. Yeah, that was and, then, <laughs> and then it's just Chris Pratt poorly singing along to his <laughs> Walkman. No, I did like that. In fact, I liked that quite a lot. In a lot of this, you get to see that from Chris Pratt, but you also get to go back to the Battle of New York as well. You get to see a lot of recreations, and they did quite well at sort of redoing sets and things. I don't know how much was like, well, I think a lot of these things are CGI in the first place. But I don't know how much of it was like superimposed and how much of it was them having to go and rebuild sets from the previous films. Well, there were set photos of the Battle of New York recreation. It was just the rubble and stuff. Mm. So they at least recreated that street they, or that alleyway they were spending all their time on. So yeah, definitely did that yeah. bit there. And then I don't know about a lot of the Stark Tower stuff, if they just built the corner where Iron Man was standing or if they had to redo a lot of it to expand on it. I know. Well, when I was re-watching it, I noticed that in the first Avengers film, Cap's costume is pretty badly banged up. Because, you know, he's been in a fight, whatever, but it's pristine when you see it in this film. Does he get changed? I mean... <laughs> He went away to get changed, and then he ended up all scruffed up again for going for shawarma afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little bits like that, isn't there? There are little bits. But I did like re-seeing that. I thought that was well done. Yeah. Time heist stuff was good. I loved it. And it gives you that opportunity to get Thanos back in in mm. Guardians of the Galaxy era, which is probably when he's at the height of his power. Without stones, that is. That's true, but it is that thing where he's more raw at that point. You don't see elements of that character development that we got in Infinity War, or that you feel's happened in the run-up to Infinity War. This is the one that Glamora hasn't betrayed him yet. Ronan hasn't tried to betray him yet. All these different bits that have happened through the films. This is him, like you say, at his peak, minus the stones, but just full of that sort of raw anger and ambition that he's got. Yeah, and his defeat's really well done as well, where he just kind of accepts it once Tony does the snap. 
and he watches his army disintegrate and he just kind of calmly waits for his own demise. I think that says a lot about him because it's almost like knowing when he's beaten and I guess accepting that he was beaten fair and square maybe because he is honourable in his own way. Yes, I mean, I found it strange. It was when he was sitting waiting when they first land after they've blown up the Avengers base. And he just sort of sits there waiting, going, no, they'll come to me. <laughs> I mean, you can do a different reading of that conversation. Where it's like, Bring me the stones. It's like, what are you going to do? Wait. I'm going to sit here. You lazy scum. <laughs> <laughs> Send my minions. Pick up the stones for me. Yeah. Thank you. It is nice to see a bit of style, though, because it is what makes these things cool is when people have a certain style to them. It's almost out of the old samurai films and anything that was derived from them where one character knows what their destiny is bringing and they simply wait on the road for that destiny to walk past. It's mythology and it adds a certain weight to the plot when you know that these two forces have to come together, especially when they do a sort of a recreation of all the little bits and bobs from the previous films that we've seen. Because when you get Thor, Tony and Captain America together, I can't remember which one of them it is, but I'm sure one of them makes some reference to the original fight in the forest that they had when they first met all those now years and films ago. And so you've got this heavy weight of meaning hanging in the air around them all as they wait for their own destinies and as I say that gives it a mythic a legendary quality that this final film in however what's it 10 12 year series has, has been building to that was most welcome I think you could really sit back and just let it wash over you when it has that weight well seeing the aftermath of the Battle of New York it's this is where it all began isn't it Basically. I mean, it all began in the first Iron Man film, but in terms of the interconnectedness, this is where it all first ever paid off. So getting to see that era again is a really good thing because it does remind you of, oh yeah, it used to be like this simple. Remember when this was the most exciting thing we'd ever seen and how is it built from there? I mean, it's night and day how far it's come. So to see the beginnings of that experiment paying off is a nice symmetry i guess no definitely nice seeing it come full circle and the way it's developed the way the original actors have all treated it and the way all those characters have changed as well is very neat that's the advantage of these films running for as long as they have much um, chattier hulk back then when we thought though <laughs> he doesn't like the stairs who can blame him poor hulk and they dial into some of the kind of fan reactions as well you've got Cap's costume in the first Avengers film where a lot of people, including myself, said it's probably not the best thing he's ever worn in live action or in the comics or whatever. And Tony's like, oh, look at that. That's ridiculous. That suit does nothing for your ass. (laughs) And then, of course, Ant-Man, ever idolising Cap, comes to his defence. And then it gets paid back again by Steve later on. The bit that just finishes it off nicely. (laughs) You don't see much of the 2012 Cap, but the bits you do see of him He's quite corny. We all know he wasn't, but he does have that kind of capability as in being old-fashioned and stuff, whereas this version of Steve, he's learned how to swear, for example, which is something <laughs> he didn't know how to do. Finally, so Steve. Ago. Finally. Yeah, or he's become comfortable with swearing, which, as far as at least Age of Ultron, he really wasn't. Even Loki makes fun of it, you know, I'm going down to coordinate search and rescue, and I have eyes on Loki. It's the militaristic 
mm. cheesy delivery to contrast with this current day version of Cap that's learned so much and loosened up a bit. Because he was uptight back in the Avengers days. Or at least more so than he is now. Mm, definitely. Okay, well, I suppose that brings us on towards the action scenes that we enjoyed in this film. We've already talked about them recreating the Battle of New York. We also got the Cap v. Cap fight. and get to see Corny Cap v. modern-day Captain America. What did you think of that? I thought it was really well coordinated because you couldn't really tell who was the double at some point. Obviously, when you're getting a face shot, you could tell, but I thought it was rather neat. Yeah, the 2012 version's wearing the cowl for a reason, probably. Mm. I mean, it's easier to paint it out, but considering <laughs> what they're capable of visual effects-wise, having someone fight oh, yeah. themselves isn't a big deal. It was a cool fight, very brief, but I liked the way they did it. Although, I couldn't help but think that the current-day version of Cap shouldn't have suffered any issues because the version from the Avengers timeline or time period hasn't learned all the sweet MMA stuff. Yeah. Cap was exhibiting in Winter Soldier. So it should have been a bit more cut and dry, I guess. But it was still fun. He did flatten him out eventually and get there. To just... use the uh, the scepter, though. Mm. And the weird thing about the scepter is they give that back to S.H.I.E.L.D. And then they take the Tesseract, or they would have had Loki not nicked it. So they're going to give the scepter back to S.H.I.E.L.D. But at the start of Age of Ultron, they've been hunting for the Scepter. So why were they giving it to S.H.I.E.L.D. to just want it back a couple of years later? <laughs> I don't know. Didn't pay attention to its importance at the time, I'm guessing. Or something like that. Who knows? Because in the Avengers, you just assume that it was lost or slipped away during the carnage of the aftermath. But in this, it was just, no, no, we're keeping this, but you can have the Tesseract. Don't you want that back as well? Because it did belong to Loki. I mean, you need it to be kicking about so that Age of Ultron can happen still. Any other action scenes that come to mind, Craig? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I don't know. I quite liked when Rhodey knocked out Quill. That was quite satisfying. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of an action scene. A very short one. Yeah, yeah, a little short fight, yeah. That's good. I mean, I oh. suppose we've got to mention the final battle, haven't we? We've got to go for that. I liked Martin's fight and then refight in Tokyo. That was cool. Oh, that is true, actually, because that was kind of... Was it done one shot? Or some of it was done one shot, wasn't it? But it was sort of... You could see the shadow moving through the building and smashing people through glass windows. And not including the opening brief action scene, it's the first one in the film. Yeah, that's true, actually. About an hour in. Or not quite, but 40 minutes in or something. Yeah, it was a good little bit that. Showing his uh, ability as well, because we've not really seen him break out in quite a bit yeah not been given enough to do but thankfully that changes in this film but yes the final battle mm. starting with the big three thor cap and iron man taking on thanos on their own which of course leads to the mjolnir lifting moment which uh, yeah just yes. an amazing moment i should have had money on that in the pool <laughs> that we did pre-end game it's all those things you think of course they've done that of course they've done that and they've paid it off in this film well i didn't think it was going to happen because i thought mjolnir was gone so i didn't think it was going to come back that's true if you didn't know it was going to be time travel which we didn't to be fair going into the film though it we was suspected suspected, suspected time travel but yeah. wasn't confirmed time travel yeah so yeah that's all good and then you get about where everyone's kind of defeated and Cap is forging on. He's going to take on an army by himself because that's Captain America. That's what he does. He refuses to give up even though it means certain death and then everybody turns up. 
the portals moment is probably one of the best cinema moments of my life. Never mind. <laughs> it's it does... a culmination of ten years of development. You know that we earned this moment in the same way that we earned the "I'm always angry" moment in Avengers. Mm. That's like that dialed up to a thousand or three thousand. Let's say three thousand. And it's the, hey, look at everybody else trying to build a shared universe. We've worked our way up to this point, and you love it because we earned it. You know who all these people are. Here they all are, in a line. Cap finally says Avengers Assemble. It only took him ten years to say it. Yeah, and it's it on. Was, like you on say, from- it's a, like an earned moment as well. is isn't just thrown in as a token thing. It's like it genuinely works. Because it's the big relief thing. And, and part of me also forgot that all these people had been brought back. <laughs> it's yeah, like you're looking at Captain of- Fight by yourself and then you're like, oh, hang on. Yeah, of course they're all back. It does a good job of making you forget that because it immediately goes to hell. Um, after the snap happens, immediately the compound is reduced to rubble. Yeah, it doesn't cut to them arriving back or anything like that. You get the portals moment, but you don't sort of get any hint of that before then. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Really, really good. manages to blow up a building without killing a single person. <laughs> well done. Great weaponry there, guys. Yeah, but they, they must have been deep, deep, deep down within that building, weren't they? Though no, you see were... that they've got the little garden outside, actually. You're right. So, yeah, yeah they can, they can be that deep next down. next to the window at the time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I guess they led me to the points that I, I didn't necessarily think about the Avengers Assemble thing but it was obvious when you get your lines that again call back on the previous on your left is, it was a classic one and I'm glad they opened with that. that that was the right starting point I think simple effective but then when Peter Parker appears and just starts yabbering and but then you know Tony Stark just grabs him and he hails back to we're not there yet in the car now we are definitely there. It is time for hugs, you know. So there's those bits I noticed, and and all that regathering was, was the emotional payoff for me. Definitely enjoyed that. Yeah, and there's lots of good, fun individual parts as the battle rages. You know, you get to see everybody do something. If you go back and watch it frame by frame and try and track an individual character across what they're doing, then I mean, I'm not going to say they've done it right, but you could probably track what they're up to in the background. Although I'm wondering what Spider-Man's swinging on when they're heading into battle, because there's nothing above them. Well, there's all the drop ships from the battleship. <laughs> so, and plus, there's enough rubble. Yeah, um, just hanging in the air. That's always kind of a problem with Spider-Man. What's his webbing attached to? And there's also a bit with a duplicate giant man as well. It's where Scott and Hope are inside the van trying to hotwire it, and then the next shot you see giant man in the background. <laughs> some shoddy editing going on there but never mind there'll be a re-edit where that's been sponged out <laughs> yeah well it'll be when the uh, the post Sony Marvel breakdown <laughs> version where they just Spider-Man cut Spider-Man out, out for some reason he doesn't come back everyone but him and then you just don't watch Far From Home and then that's it it's fine <laughs> yeah watch the films in the following order <laughs> yeah <laughs> No, Although it's... he gets more to do than some others in this battle, which I guess is maybe a clause in the Sony contract. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the thing is, it's because he's been essentially edited out the rest of the film, so 
maybe it was a deal, you know, something with Sonic going, right, okay, well, if he's going to be edited out the majority of the film, then you've got to make use of him in the you battle. Get some, he gets that moment with Stark, which is fine. You, mm. you do want that. And then he gets to carry the gauntlet about. He gets to piggyback on Valkyrie's horse. <laughs> and so on. He has a lot to do. Yeah, so he so gets a I mean, I think the problem is that when you've got so many characters like that, how do you give them all their moment? I think they all got a little cool scene each, but they didn't get as many as each other, definitely. But the, the Quill Gamora reunion is quite funny. Yes, I think I did hear an interview where they said there was a moment, there was like a break in the action where they're all sort of hunkered down in a trench and they all get sort of a little bit of reunion time, but they ended up editing it out. Yeah, I wonder if it's on the Blu-ray. It might be. It might be one of the scenes that they've they've sort of done. But I think what they said is it would still be sort of green screen and whatever at the moment because there would be so much that needed to be edited into it. Yeah, I can imagine something like that would break the Mm. flow of battle. It's like, we're going to stop for a chat, really? I mean, there are some moments where they do stop for a chat, such as Stark and Strange. Yeah, they seem to have kept in what they needed. You wanted the Quill Gamora reunion. You wanted to see Peter and Tony reunited, especially after... The end of Infinity War, the way that scene went and sort of tugged at everyone. So you really want to see that being closed. But difficult. I don't envy people when they're trying to write so many people into the the scene. Should it look just unconquerable at the beginning? I think they do a remarkable job of it, despite the fact that we've found like odd little nitpicky bits in it. Overall, very impressive, because it could have just been an absolute mess. Yeah, every character, something cool to do. That's yeah. Every character needs a moment. Every character needs a cool line. Every character needs to get a one-on-one fight with Thanos. Even with Thanos' henchmen, you don't really get that time. You've got Maw in there and the other ones that I can't remember the name of. <laughs> They're all floating about as well. They don't really get their time. They they got their little moment in Infinity War and you see them sort of in the background on this, but they don't give you much else. Yeah. And I think for the purposes of a large-scale battle like that, it works really well. I think it really helps that you know everybody on one of the sides and then you have enough of a grounding on who's on the other side so you've got Thanos there and you kind of know his henchmen they're sort of there you know them I mean they don't really do anything in the fight itself that's in any way memorable but at least with all the heroes everybody you've met before in other films and then you've got the backup magic people the backup Wakandans because you need an army because there's another army Mm. and as many characters there is in the MCU you still can't hope to take on an army like that with, I don't know, I mean, I don't know if anybody's counted how many characters there actually are, if you include everybody, but all the named characters, certainly. They wouldn't stand a chance on their own against an army, so having the Wakandans and all the, the mm. Doctor Strange magic people is fine. No, Just the, the poor Netflix boys get left out I know, I would have liked to have seen the Netflix folk pulled in there, <laughs> even just for a little thing. What a good moment that would have been. Yeah, yeah just uh, there's a deleted scene where the defenders are all standing around waiting for a portal to open that never opens because Doctor Strange forgot about them. Yeah, post-credit scene would have just been Agents of Shield mopping up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's what you need. Anything else in action? Standout moments all, for you? I could talk all night about how awesome the portal <laughs> is, but it's great. I mean, it's like I said, one of the best cinematic moments of my life. <laughs> Just epic. Epicness. Aaron, anything else from you? No, I think we've covered the action pretty well. Awesome. Well, in that case, I will let you all go to your respective time zones. Aaron and me have got a lot to catch up on after our blip. Yeah, you won't believe all the TV you've missed in the last five years. <laughs>
I know I've got a lot of Arrowverse to catch up on so that I can record those podcasts and send them back in time. Mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely the way this is going to work. Craig, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for giving me the night off hosting. Yeah, and you get to talk about it all over again. You get two chances to talk about it. You've got so much to say. Let's hope there wasn't that much overlap with the last podcast. I think we've covered everything. And Aaron's obviously got to go off now and work on his symposium on time travel. Oh, God, yeah, I've forgotten that. We look forward to reading it in the future or the past or, in fact, right now. What was the proviso I put on it? I would only do it if... I can't remember. It was only an hour ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yet I can't remember what I said and yet it seems like it was so long ago well when the podcast goes up you'll probably re-listen and then that'll give you your marching orders yeah you'll get it all there speaking of which if you're listening to this podcast or in your favourite player of choice remember to subscribe and leave us a comment of what you thought leave it all nice and polite otherwise we'll cry if you want to find us online you can catch us at facebook.com forward slash blog, all one word and also on Twitter, we are at Neil Before Blog. Thank you very much to Craig. Thank you very much to Aaron. I have been Chris McCrell, and also thank you to a guy called Neil who made this epic music, which is playing right now behind me. Definitely. Thank you, Neil. You make me sound even more epic than I did when recording this with no epic music. <laughs>